God, though, is Michael Caine. And you will listen to the Chitton's God, the Midnight Cinema. Blowing the bloody doors off since 1977. And another thing, don't you throw those bloody spears at me. You're listening to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since Yeah, the Midnight Cinema, back on the air, baby. Here we go. <laughs> How's everybody doing yeah. out there today? Yeah? Hopefully better than we are. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Well, we're doing pretty good today. Not not in bad shape. Not not as uh not as tired as we sometimes tend to be, but uh we've had I've had a half a cup of coffee, so I'm good to go. I've had about a tenth, and I guess for me, anytime I have to get up before noon, which is most days. I'm tired. I take a lot. I'm like that locomotion, locomotive that just takes a long time to get going sometimes. You know, I'll agree with that uh, because I am not a fan, no matter how much sleep I get, of getting up early. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it, it's it's kind of cool if I like to fish. So if I'm going to go fishing or yeah. you know, you're going to, to catch a football game or something. But even then, it's uh, beyond that. Just day-to-day stuff just gets to be... Yeah, it's just it's it's hard to get it's hard to get motivated to wake up early. I mean, I like one of the thing, great things about working off shifts for me has always been that I sleep as long as I like, and I wake up when I feel like I need to wake up, as opposed to when an alarm clock feels like I need to wake up. Yes, <laughs> which I is a great it. feeling. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I hit snooze probably between five and eight times every morning. Yep, and to keep the theme going today, I usually wake up looking like Charles Bronson. <laughs> <laughs> In one of his pensive moments. <laughs> All right. So this is the first week of our uh, Ladies Appreciation Month, as we like to call it. And uh, this week we're going to be covering uh, Breakheart Pass that was picked by Demise and uh, The Legend of Billy Jean, which was picked by Valencia. So uh, we're looking forward to uh, covering those films. It's always great to do listener content. And now we got a whole month of it. So. Uh, this should be a really fun uh, couple weeks, or well, three or four weeks. So we're really looking forward to doing this, and uh, we hope everybody's everybody that got their picks in. We hope they're satisfied with our reviews. That is, I don't know, <laughs> or with our content, or, or with our show. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> but that being said, I, I really don't have much else to say here in the opening. Uh, I don't know if you got anything to add here in the beginning here. I have nothing to add to the conversation, uh, regrettably. Oh, that's okay. We'll have plenty of room for more conversation on the other halves. So we will take a break. And when we come back, we will jump into some film review, which you all love to hear. Okay, we'll be back after this. What's up, kitties? You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, the only show crazy enough to tackle the Brian Bosworth classic Stone Cold. 
and the leaves came tumbling down. Hi, this is Demise. I'm calling in for uh, a movie pick, if you guys don't mind covering it. Um, I was trying to rack my brain on some movies that really made an impact on me when I was younger that, you know, weren't big box office things, and I'm not sure if I, you know, made it right. Uh, I went over a lot of them, like um, April Fool's Day. Um, I was going to throw a pirate movie in there just to mess with you guys. I mean, there was just a whole bunch of them that came to mind. But anyways... um, I started thinking about the greats that I enjoyed, like John Wayne. Uh, Big Jake is my favorite. Um, Searchers was my dad's favorite. And Charles Bronson. And I thought, well, what really got Charles Bronson stuck in my head as, as somebody who I just really admire from older movies? And I was looking down his list. You know, we go past Death Wish 4 and Death Wish this and that. And those were, you know, the first one or two weren't too bad. But and then I saw Breakheart Pass, and I think that's the one that did it, but it's been so long since I've seen it. I went ahead and put it on my Netflix queue to come in here pretty quick, and uh, I'm going to request that one as the one you guys review. I don't know if it was a huge box office hit at the time. I haven't looked that deep into it, but I just know that that movie means something to me, so I'm really looking forward to watching it again and, and reliving whatever that was, whatever it resonated in my in my psyche or whatever, so... Ladies night, or ladies month, or whatever, it doesn't matter to me. I just appreciate you guys taking time to, to take some customer requests, or listener requests. And <laughs> you guys keep up the great show. Bye. All right, so we are back, and that was a voicemail from Demise when we asked everybody to call in their uh, listener selections uh, for Ladies Appreciation Month. That's what she called in. She had a little cold at the time, but that's been a while back now. But, uh, yeah, I, I like the customer request. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, she chose uh, Break Card Pass, and so that's what we are going to go over right here, right now. So, uh, uh, Large William, I guess, you, do you want to do you want to synopsize this film? Uh, sure, I'd be glad to, actually. And I do want to say, just uh, the great thing about Demise picking this was as big of fans of Bronson as both of us were, and neither one had ever seen this. Uh, yes, that is awesome. So, very cool. Um, okay, so here we go. When a military outpost is struck with a severe outbreak of diphtheria, the authorities send a train loaded with medical supplies and replacement soldiers. Um, as, the train is on, as the train is on its way, however, passengers are murdered. Um, John Deacon, a man under arrest and being transported to custody, does, custody, does some digging to find out the reason for the carnage. There's a little bit of self-editing in there as well. They're both a little bit too spoilery for my liking. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, and we'll talk about why that might be spoilery here in a minute. Because most people think, I think they think of Charles Bronson movies. They think pretty straightforward, you know, usually, a, you know, a Western or a cop film or something like that. Pretty straightforward stuff. But this one, not as straightforward as typical Bronson films. So No, not at all. All right. So we will get into this. Now, first things first. 
let's talk about the cast of this film. Let's talk. I'm going to read off some names here, and let's just talk about it. Okay, you got Charles Bronson. You got Ed Lauder, who some of you guys might remember we talked about before. Is the he's the uh, the chief guard in the Longest Yard with the, the Burt Reynolds movie, and Ed Lauder is infinitely recognizable. Uh, he's looked the same for forty years. <laughs> he's the one of the Dick Clark's of character actors. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, you got Jill Ireland, who was uh, either Bronson's wife or girlfriend. Either way, I know it was uh, supposedly "quote unquote" the love of his life. Uh, she unfortunately passed away a little young. Uh, ben Johnson, who is one of the great tough guy cowboy actors of all time, uh, most notably probably uh, some Peck and Paul. He's in the Wild Bunch. Yes, you got uh, Charles Durning, who uh, not exactly a tough guy actor, but one of the great character actors as well. Mm-hmm. You got Richard Crenna. Uh, who still acts, no matter what film he's in, still I cannot see anything past the fact that he's Rambo's father figure. <laughs> yes, I can. I, whenever I picture him, I picture him wearing a beret. Yes, yes. Come I on, come on, John. Come on, John. Further, though, Sammy, about Richard Crenna, because I wanted to see some other stuff beyond what, like you said, he's so recognizable. Very, very cool. He actually did a Jean-Pierre Melville film that I've been meaning to see for a long time called Un Flick with Alain Delon oh. and Catherine Deneuve. Nice. So, I mean, out. He's, he's actually got second billing in that film behind Delon, so I'm very, very keen to see him in that. Well, he kind of became a you know a character actor in the 70s. I think he was uh, more of a – they tried to make him more of a leading man in the beginning, and uh, then he just kind of became a character actor. But uh, he has some ticks that make him – you know, Richard Crenna make him Richard Crenna. You know, I, I, one of my ticks that I've always noticed about him is whenever he speaks, he keeps his head tilted to the right. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know – I don't know why he does that, but he does that all the time. I believe he even spoofed his own character in Hot Shots Part 2. Yes, I think it was. Yes, he did. And that was just an awesome performance, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it was. And there was that great bit where they're going down the river. And you said, I think she wasn't, didn't Sheen have a cameo in that, too? I think so, yeah. He did that. Yeah, because, of course, because Charlie's in it, right? So yes. he did that cameo sort of like Apocalypse Now with the gunboat going down the river. Yeah, they passed each other. Book. They passed each other and both went, I loved you in Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which was inspired, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, lastly, but certainly not le- well, not lastly yet. Let me let me mention also that Bill fucking McKinney's in this. Now, most people know Bill McKinney as possibly one of the worst villains in the history of cinema, as the rapist in uh, Deliverance. Uh, he played the the preacher, uh, the gentleman, uh, which is just weird to think that he was a preacher in this film. <laughs> it's going to go from talking about a pretty mouth to <laughs> yeah. Uh, preaching, yes. yes. And then, last but certainly not least, one Bob Tessier. So, who again, in the longest yard. And, uh, Hard times. Yes, infinitely recognizable as well. Except in this film, uh, a little, which we'll get into a little bit further here in a minute. But, uh, yeah, he's got some interesting, uh, uh, interesting get up for Mr. Tessier in this film. So, <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. All right, so this film was directed by Tom Grease, who I don't, I don't even know who Tom Grease, I don't even know what else he directed. All I know is, is that uh, this is pretty competent uh, uh, direction here. This is a pretty straightforward story, kind of a murder mystery set in place on a train. Uh, pretty good stuff. The music in the film done by Jerry Goldsmith, which I like the theme and some of the other things, but then again, it still had those Jerry Goldsmith moments that always kind of irritate me a little bit. Uh, there were some very Scooby-Doo-ish type music moment cues in here. If I may interject, I completely agree with you. And I, I, anyone, you know this more than probably anyone else, Sammy, is uh, I'm really not the biggest Goldsmith fan. I think he's very heavy-handed at times. Mm-hmm. And 
some of this stuff, you're right, there was a few good pieces of music in this film, but some of it was very heavy-handed and, and very dated. Like you said, there's almost this sort of 60s swinging kind of vibe, or even some of the Western stuff sounds like fucking the Ponderosa theme, or, or the Magnificent Seven, or, you know, it just... Yeah, very similar to the Magnificent Seven, you're right. Yeah, so... The theme was good. I like the theme, yeah. and because they played it again at the end, I like the theme and stuff. It's just the stuff in between, you know, that kind of Scooby-Doo stuff that... Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> you know that kind yeah. of stuff which kind of always kind of drives me crazy so i mean it was okay it was effective but uh, just kind of yeah i don't know i'm not a big fan of it either so and goldsmith he has moments but uh, i don't consider him as great as some uh, as some people do we might get some email and voicemail about that some people might be really loving but that's okay uh, bring in your arguments i'd like to hear them yes but anyway tom grease the director i don't really think he directed anything of note that i can think of i know he directed the helter skelter tv movie which I think had Steve Rails back in it. Wicked. Uh, I'm looking through his filmography here. A I'm not lot really of TV s- boy. Yeah, a lot of TV. Looks like a couple westerns. Not really seeing anything that kind of just kind of strikes a chord though. But yeah, a lot of TV. A lot of TV westerns, as a matter of fact. Um, but yeah, I mean, so he's a competent director, a working man's director, I would say. Uh, that's probably the best way to describe him. And uh, he does a competent job with this film now. The film's also shot by Lucian Ballard, so the cinematography is very good. And uh, actually, the second unit director on this was a stuntman, a very popular stuntman in Hollywood history, known as uh, Yakima Kanut. Who uh, Yakima Kanut, I believe, was a Native American uh, stuntman. Did a lot of cowboy movies and a lot of cowboy stunts and stuff. So I don't know if he did any of the stunts in this. I know he was a second unit director, but uh, there are some impressive uh, train stunts in this film. Uh, oh I, yeah! I mean, there's one. There's one scene. And I'm assuming it had to be real because I don't know how they could have green screened it back in '75. But yeah, you're you're not fitting the green screen in the DeLorean <laughs> for this one, kids. No, that was uh, there was some train stuff that was uh, pretty hair raising. I mean, it was pretty amazing. So, oh yeah, that's all I'm gonna say. You definitely gotta check it out. I mean, we in these films with trains, you always get the proverbial people get on top of trains at some point, right? But this one, the the stunts on top of the train, pretty damn impressive, I have to say. Even though I don't understand why all of a sudden that the cook in the film was uh, one of the best fighters in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, who was it? Was it Seagal played a character? Called, was he called Chef? Uh, something like that. Was it Under Siege? Yeah. Where he was a cook so. and he was a badass? <laughs> cook, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we get going in this film and it's pretty much a basic setup and stuff. Uh, but I will say it's one of the few films I've ever seen where Charles Bronson gets bitch slapped. <laughs> and and not just once. That's the thing. It's really weird to see him play sort of a, a scoundrel. Usually his character, they try and shoehorn him into this meek, mild-mannered uh, everyman, which we've kind of sort of laughed about before. But further, like the typing and all that other bullshit we, we laughed about. But it's funny to see him play sort of a scoundrel that gets pin-slapped repeatedly. Yes, and I think they still tried to make him like a man of uh, merit by saying that he used to be a medical teacher and a doctor. Yeah. Oh, oh yes, yes, that's right, that's right. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this is I think one of the first films I've ever seen, uh, you know, where Charles Bronson is uh, considered a medical lecturer. I mean, that's not to say you know you think bad about Bronson. It's just some weird character quirks, you know. You just don't picture Charles Bronson as a medical lecturer slash outlaw slash whatever he ends up being in this film. So, cause trust me, there's another, there's another job title. He ends up being in the film, which I don't want to give away. So no. Yeah, so it's very interesting to me that the, he's a Renaissance man. He's got all kinds of talents. <laughs> God, he did. Uh, I, I think this is also another one of those films that I think this is rated PG. And again, this is, uh, 
one of those times where these films back in the seventies they were rated PG. PG meant something different in the seventies than it means now. Uh, I think you see a blood in this uh, a little bit. Yeah, it's it's a pretty grisly film in some spots. Oh no, they actually it is a real grisly film. It's very movie. fucking grisly in, in <laughs> multiple spots. Yeah, there's one scene where. Uh, I'll get into it here in a second because uh, there's one of my favorite cinema conventions again. I think this is uh, yes, uh, where a, a dummy gets thrown off of high places again. Yeah, and a few dummies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's quite a few dummies flying around this time. <laughs> but there's one scene where a dummy flies off and it hits a beam and it is fucking gross. Ooh. The way Ooh. the sound it is the grossest sound I've heard in a long it's, time. It's like that watermelon hitting the concrete sound, man. Oh, it's man. fucking. I I I went ooh when I saw it. I know it was brutal, man. I, I was covering my mouth and laughing, and I had to rewind it, of course, because I'm a sicko. But you know that's me. Yeah. <laughs> but you also get some. Uh, there's a, actually some a scene where I think the preacher himself is actually looking through a nudie book. Uh, you know, of of uh, like the local horrors, and because the, there's a brothel in the little town, they stop in. I think he's looking through there, and I believe there's some uh, half-naked women in there. So, oh, very nice. I didn't see that. Yeah. So uh, again, you know, PG meant something uh, that different than than it meant than it means now. It's uh, interesting to me, though, some of the cinematic conventions. The film's a little clunky in spots. I can't say. I mean, I really liked it, but I have to say, we have to. You know, if we if we weren't doing a show about criticizing films, then we can't. You know, we can't ignore these things. There's, it's interesting to me that one minute they got Bronson tied up and, you know, he's dangerous and blah, blah, blah. And then literally, like, ten minutes later, he's eating dinner with him at the table. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There was no transition scene there that, to to tell me that they, you know, trusted him all of a sudden, that they would untie him and let him eat. But it was, uh, it was, it was nice of them to untie him uh, and let him eat. <laughs> you know what? I would say that I think they tried to justify that or segue that or transition that by – when a few things start occurring on the train, um, they require his skills as a medical examiner. Mm-hmm. So I think that the fact that he's sort of assisting them, yes, and it sort of has um, alibis. I think that's where that came in because to have to worry about him tied down when there's all this other shit going on on the train, I think would have been too much of a headache. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's true. That's true. Uh, there's a lot of good scenes. You can tell that him and uh, Jill Ireland were an item. I mean, there's a lot of good scenes with uh, Bronson. Isn't really known for emoting much. I mean, he's more of a tough guy actor with a stone face. You know, he looks like he's chiseled out of granite. That's just that's just who he is. And I've always been a big fan of his because he so doesn't fit the movie star conventions. And it's amazing to me still to this day that at one point in time he was one of the biggest stars in the world. Uh, right up there with Burt Reynolds, actually, in the 70s, you know, as far as money-making goes and things like that. So really amazing when you think about it in retrospect and stuff. But uh, there's some good scenes with him and Joe Ireland, I thought, uh, that you could see there's some you know real emotion behind him and stuff. And also good scenes with him and Ed Lauder. I mean, him and Ed Lauder were really good together in this film. Yeah, they got a real good chemistry. And it's funny, we were talking in 10 to Midnight about the forced chemistry with him and Andrew Stevens, but him and Ed Lauder have great chemistry in this. And that was one of my favorite things in the film was uh, the way that played out. But it, it yeah, it's nice to see them. Uh, and like you said, the stuff with Jill Ireland, a little piece of trivia for uh, all of our listeners. This is something that um, I really geeked out to no end. My wife, of course, was much less impressed than I was. <laughs> uh, just one day I was on a whim, just seeing who, uh, who shared wedding anniversaries with my wife and I. And as luck would have it, Charles Bronson and Jill Ireland have the same wedding anniversary as my wife and I. So nice. I called her right away. I'm like, oh, baby, baby, you won't believe this. Charles <laughs> Bronson and Jill Ireland have the same wedding anniversary. I was like, yeah. 
I'm like, no, no, it's Charles Bronson. She's like, and <laughs> like you don't you don't understand how cool that is. Like, yeah, yeah. You know. I, I, if you'd have called me and said that, I'd been like, no way, awesome, yeah. We would have been like two little like schoolgirls like, gossiping on the phone. Yeah, let's have a party. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I totally agree. That is an interesting piece of trivia. That there you go. So if you guys want to know Large Williams' anniversary, just kind of look up Charles Bronson and Joe Ireland's anniversary, and you'll find out. And send you some gifts. Yes. <laughs> Some Charles Bronson uh China, something like that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Made of stone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so I want to also say that I I love westerns. I mean, it's no mis- it's no secret here that I'm a huge western fan. Um I absolutely loved the setting of this film. I love the train. I love the the period, the costume period. I loved everything about it. Uh it, it just really really it's one of those kind of seminal Western looking films, uh, kind of the transition period from modern, you know, from old Western to from old West to new West, uh, the train featuring very prominently in the film. And with that being said, I mean, it kind of really turns, it goes from Western, which is what I thought it was mostly going to be. It goes from that into a murder mystery, as was kind of said in the plot synopsis and kind of a, you know, Agatha Christie type murder on the Orient express type film. You are absolutely right on everything you just said. I couldn't agree more with anything you just said. Um, it, it, yeah, the whole murder on the Orient Express, or holy cow, murder on the Orient Express type stuff. Um, the landscape shots, the setting, the time period, like you said, the transition into the sort of the newer Western, uh, the new West. Um, and you get some really great landscape shots with the train rolling by, and there's there's sort of a snowy landscape. And I think we'd sort of asked. Um, of any other westerns prior when we were watching Great Silence that had snow. And there's a lot of snow in this film, not as much as, as the Great Silence, of no, course, but yeah. some beautiful landscape shots with the train going by and snow-dappled uh, mountains and ranges and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just beautiful stuff. And, uh, you know, the train features very prominently in the film. As a matter of fact, it features so prominently that even when the opening credits are coming on, you, even when United Artists comes up, they are uh, you hear the train steam engine rolling right at the beginning. So this movie is all about the train, and uh, that's fun because uh, I love films set on trains. I've always thought trains are a really great uh, genre convention because they're very claustrophobic. They're very you know narrow hallways and stuff, and uh, I miss uh, films shot on trains. I always liked that about uh, Hostel Part 2, I believe. Was it Part 2 they were on a train? Yes. Yeah, I thought that was pretty fun uh, to go back to the train thing. I always liked that. Horror movies on trains, fun stuff. Night Train Murders, which yes. I think was where... Uh, Eli, I was going to say Eli Wallach. Eli Roth got that from. <laughs> nice. And then, just, of course, there's Terror Train and stuff. And, of course, this isn't a horror movie. But because it is a murder mystery uh, and there are some pretty brutal murders in here, it, it kind of comes off as not, not a horror film, but this is a kind of a uh, kind of a maybe a hard mystery film. But either way, it, the claustrophobia of trains always works well in cinema. And, unfortunately, you know, it's it's harder to do that like with a plane or something, you know. I don't know. They've tried it a couple times with planes, but it just doesn't work as well. Well, uh, I will tell you one uh, vehicle that it moves best on, and that's a bus. Oh, yeah, going well. forty five miles an hour or whatever the fuck it was. <laughs> it's fifty five miles an hour. Couldn't go below. Uh, couldn't go below fifty five. I believe. I guess if they were going forty five, we wouldn't have had a movie, would we? <laughs> well, we'd had a sh- we'd had a short. <laughs> yeah, we had had a short. <laughs> there we go. Uh, but yeah, that uh, I really, really love the setting, and of course, I spoke about the uh, the dummies being dropped from high above. That's just some that's just some amazing stuff. You also get some good old fashioned cowboys and Indians uh, confrontation, and some good old fashioned cowboy and Indian stunt work. Uh, 
which I really liked, and uh, also some actual sword play, which uh, actually turns out to be quite brutal, <laughs> which I was really yeah. surprised by. Uh, some slashing, to say the least. Now, I saved the best for last as far as my side goes, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit. That's why I saved it, but uh, here's what I want to say. Bob Tessier is one of my favorite bad guy character actors, tough guy actors, one of my favorite guys in Burt Reynolds' films. Uh, Burt Reynolds films. I mean, he, I just love the guy, and you, if you guys don't know, are not familiar with him, and you can't remember us talking about him in the long shard, look him up. Once you see his face, you'll, you'll know exactly who we're talking about here. This film, though, <laughs> they decided to not only dub him, which was a weird, weird, uh, I don't know why they dubbed him. I really don't. Uh, he does have kind of an odd voice, but I, I don't, still don't know why they dubbed him. Uh, but they decided to put a beard on him. And this is probably, I'm going to go ahead and say that this might be the fakest looking beard in cinema history. <laughs> That's including porn. <laughs> yes. This one, this one is, this one is rough, guys. I mean, this is a, a bad beard. And it was <laughs> it was amazing how appealing it was for me to watch him act with this bad beard. <laughs> it, to give people a visual, and I said this to you, Sammy, before we went on, it's like he was the fourth member of ZZ Top, <laughs> with the most impressive of the four, though, with a, in terms of beard. Oh, it, it's it's really rough. I mean, he really seriously looks like an Amish man because he's got suspenders on, he's got the you know old west outfit on he's got the spirit and uh, bob bob tessier is also known for not ever having any hair he always shaved his head and uh so he has this massive beard and he has this bald head so it really it really you know that beard is very prominent because he has no hair on his head it was just really an odd choice i really don't understand why they had to give him a beard first of all i don't understand why they dubbed him that's the only thing if there's any real flaw in the movie i mean it is clunky in some spots but Although I'll say clunky just because I think the director just wasn't as talented as at building suspense as maybe another director would have been, but very effective film throughout. The only thing that might hold it back to me is some of the choices with uh, some of the characters and Tessie is the only one really I thought I had any problem with was, was that, that he, uh, no, he wasn't miscast. He was cast perfectly. He just was, he was miss uh, wardrobed. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we don't talk about the wardrobing or the uh, stuff in, on the gentleman's guide very often, but this was a mistake. They made some mistakes here. So uh, that's pretty much all I got to say about Break Card Pass. I'll kick it over to you and let's get some more stuff going here. Now, uh, there is another, there is some good facial hair throughout this film. We get actually Ed Lauder rocking the Raleigh fingers. Nice. Yes, it was. It was sweet. <laughs> it was a sweet stash. Looked a lot better than, uh, than, uh, uh Tessier's beard. Uh, and in, in sort of talking about hair and fur, um, we've seen at the beginning of the film um, Charles Bronson rocking a three-quarter length black fur coat. Yes. And outside of pimps, not too many men can can rock the black three-quarter length fur coat. <laughs> Bronson wore some fur coats in the 70s. I never have understood that, but they liked to uh, – I think in the White Buffalo, actually, too, he wears a fur coat. Yeah, he uh, <laughs> Yeah, he did like to rock a fur coat, didn't he? <laughs> yes, he did. He was, a, he was a pimp before pimps were on the cinema that often. I mean, he was the original – he was the Mac. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we, you talked about the, the whole PG thing. And, and, yeah, this film, I think, would even push the envelope of 14A, I think, because there's some really brutal stuff in it. Um, uh, this doesn't give anything away because it's a very, very minor character. Tessier, at close range and in terms of the shot itself, shoots a man in the head. Yes. And it's a punchy little moment in the film. It's a brutal shooting. And that's why I'm just stunned that that alone would throw it over the PG mark, I would think. 
Yeah, and that was actually uh, a stunning moment, too. I remember watching that, and I remember thinking, oh, he's not going to do anything. And the next thing I know, he did it. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> yeah, it was a brutal moment. I mean, you know, PG, you can maybe get away with shooting someone from, you know, 20 yards away, and there's no blood, and he just kind of falls over. But mm-hmm. it's just point blank, man. I mean, you don't see any, you know, it's not like Rambo where you get to see chunks of flesh or anything, but it is a brutal little moment for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and like we talked about, the, the, there's a few instances where people fall out of trains, dummies, and they're very brutal. And they always, you know, they hit that wood scaffolding or the wood beams. And the first one, it's sort of like a pinball where he hits a few things <laughs> on the way down. Yes. Um, which was awesome. But then you get the variation on that later on where the second one doesn't hit anything except one, and it's sort of an exclamation point. Oh, man. That's the one we were talking about. Where it's like, oh. Because <laughs> the other one's like, oh, 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 oh. But this one was just one home run shot. Yeah, both of them very effectively done through sound editing, I have to admit. Yeah, they really were. Um, after the first one drops, there's actually a real, I think maybe the best shot in the film, potentially, Um just to give sort of the uh, viewer some perspective, you have uh, the train stops, of course, uh, you know, they, they can, so they can recover the body and see if the guy's alive or whatever. Um, and they're all standing on the top of the train tracks and there's a, a shot. It sort of uh, pans up and looks at them and you can see just how high up uh, they are and how far this person would have fallen off the train. Yes. Yes. So it was a good little shot. It was sort of like that shot in, uh, the, in, um, longest yard where you got the huddle over the guy mm-hmm. that was like way further um there's a scene with a, a runaway 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 portion of the train mm-hmm. i thought that was a pretty tense scene and in fact it was a, and again a very brutal scene because um the train uh jumps off the track and and you hear the screams of these people and, and the train smashes to fucking bits and it was, again, a very, very brutal, uh, tense scene for me. I agree. Uh, that was set up well. There's some other stuff in here. The tension wasn't really built well. But that was probably the scene where the most tension was built and built well. It it really paid off well, too. I love that they kept showing these static shots of this valley. And I kept saying, why, why do they keep showing the static shots of this valley? And then I kind of figured it out about halfway through that they were showing it because this is where the train cars were going to go off. And yes. It took me a minute to figure that out because it was just such an old cinema convention, something I'm not used to seeing anymore, you know, that they would show these this empty valley. I mean, literally, they would cut to the inside of the car, to the train on the tracks, to this empty valley, to the inside of the car, to the train on the tracks, this empty valley. They kept doing it, and they kept building it up. And that was very effectively done, I have to agree. And that, those are real train cars. That's not a, that's yeah. not a miniature. That's uh, real no. train cars. And, uh, wow, that, that, was, that was a pretty impressive uh, crash. Well, yeah, because the first thing I thought was they're not going like, to go off the tracks. There's going to be a miniature, and I'm going to laugh at it. But no, I mean, these were real real train cars that got, I mean, just smashed to bits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were really demolished. Um, speaking of inside the train car, one sort of technical sort of boo-boo I noticed that I thought was very funny. There's a scene when Jill Ireland and Charles Bronson are uh, are in one of the, the tra- <laughs> in one of the train cars. And you can see in the window of the train, you can see sort of that stock outside footage as if the train's going by yeah yeah i guess because of lighting or maybe whatever it was but the funny thing was the scene goes on long enough that you can see the real change uh-huh. yeah and the train starts going the other way outside <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes i know i saw that <laughs> yeah which i thought was kind of awesome <laughs> well there's there's a couple of moments where actually i believe there's one point in time where i saw power lines Oh, nice. Uh, which back in those days, there was no such thing as power lines, especially up in the mountains. So, 
Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that's just something you... These are low-budget films. Bronson's known for making a lot of low-budget uh, cowboy westerns, you know, action movies and stuff. So these are just kind of the... These are kind of the things you expect from this this type of cinema. So, oh, absolutely. Uh, now, you and I, it's no secret of our absolute man crush on Charles Bronson. <laughs> yes. There's a scene in this film, and it's featured on a very nice-looking poster for the film. Um that uh, not the DVD case, it's an actual poster from from back in the day. Uh, that just is one of many reasons why we absolutely love Charles Bronson. This is a fucking man's man. He's on top of a snowy, cold train car in a suit, no jacket, <laughs> in a knife fight on a mountain. Yes, <laughs> doing his own stunts in all likelihood. Yes, that is a fucking man. Yes, I would say he did all of his own stunts except possibly for the hanging off the train car, which, uh, yeah, uh, nobody should have done that. That was insane. But uh, just because, you know, they actually shot it where you could see that they were going over those uh, large tresses, those large, you know, those large wooden tresses that they used to build and stuff. You can see them down below. And like I say, there's no rear projection here. That's real. And uh, that was pretty impressive. I mean, that was Jackie Chan impressive, in my opinion. I completely agree because I and I was trying to wrap my brain around like okay how did they do this did they maybe have some cables uh, around his wrist or how, you know I was trying to wrap my head around how they could have done that because that's a very very daring ballsy stunt because it's it's one of those things where the train swings around a corner mm-hmm. and you can see uh, Bronson's character kind of swing out mm-hmm. with the train over the fucking void <laughs> yes yes I, I, kept, I, kept, I kept saying tresses but I think it's trestle actually and I kept saying the wrong word but. Also, the only thing that's funny about that is when the per- when Bronson is actually hanging off of the train, you can obviously tell it's a stunt double. It's it's pretty funny the hair, if you look at the hair and the mustache. The mustache is a little thicker. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, because the old catfish Bronson there. <laughs> yeah, you got catfish Bronson, and then when the he's hanging off of it, all of a sudden he's got a full Tom Selleck going on. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice. I'll have to go back and take a look. <laughs> it's pretty awesome but you know I, again i expect that from this type of cinema and if i'm a movie uh producer i'm sure as fuck not gonna have my money maker charles bronson actually hanging off a car so no but i no, am I'm, I'm impressed that he got up on top of the train though in the snow yes in a suit again very impressed and to sort of compare and contrast i had actually a really great movie viewing night last night i watched this back to back with code of silence Yes. For those of you that don't know, Code of Silence is an 80s Chuck Norris film. And the main bad guy is another one of our uh, favorites, Henry Silva. Yes. Who gets, so, men- who gets mentioned on this show more than he's ever been mentioned even in Hollywood. Yes, it's very true. Um, but there's, an, uh, there's a scene that gave me some real perspective. I already found this scene in Break Hard Pass on the Train very thrilling. But there's a scene where um, Chuck Norris is fighting a bad guy on top of a train car in, in Chicago. And uh, it it just, you know, they were kind of tippy-toeing around and it was kind of slow and everything else. And that goes to show, I mean, 10, you know, 10 years prior on top of a, a snowy train car uh, going over a mountain uh, in Breakheart Pass, they made it look that much more thrilling. Now, I'm having a, a bit to rack my brain a little bit. Let me, and remind me, if you could, real quick, uh, in uh, Code of Silence, was, uh, was it Norris Mustache or Norris Beard? It was Norris Beard. Okay, okay, okay. I know he had some mustache uh, movies too. Yes, I usually early, kinda... a lot of his early stuff was was mustache. He yeah, had the lighter, the blonder hair, and yes. and the stash. There's very few films of his where he actually stars in that he doesn't have facial hair of some sort. Yeah, I think the, the was a Game of Death. Uh... Yeah, I mean, there's very few. 
There's very few where, if you really think about his filmography, there's very few where he doesn't have at least a mustache or a beard. Yeah, it's true. Uh, he's very, very, true. very happy with the, but, you know, that's kind of how I categorize Norris films. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but no, I just, again, it just showed me how thrilling that scene was on the train. So um, just a couple more notes here. Um, there's a few nice subtle twists in it with the intertwining of the characters and, and things are revealed that I thought was nice. I didn't quite see coming. Um, I don't want to get too much more into it. Again, I know that's kind of cryptic, but um, I think we get well, maybe the first mention of in film of Get Her Done. I can't believe you caught that. I was kind of hoping you didn't catch it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did hear, let's get her done. And yeah. I remember thinking to myself, we had just had a conversation the other day about how, you know, stand-up comedians weren't what they used to be in some aspects. And we were talking about, and I'm not going to go into too much detail about it. We were talking about a stand-up comedian who neither one of us care for who says get her done. And uh, we'll leave it at that. But it was interesting that uh, I heard get her done. I did not expect that in the Charles Bronson movie. No. And this is going back to the mid-70s. So <laughs> I kind of chuckled at that. Uh, speaking of stunt work, this, this might be my last stunt note. It may not. I can't see here. Uh, a man jumps off the moving train while he's on fire. Yes. Yes, he does. <laughs> Thankfully, uh, there was snow on the ground. Thankfully, there was snow on the ground. Um, yeah, we got the face the face slashing on horseback, which was kind of cool. There's lots of shootings in the head and everything else at the back end of the film. And and actually, that is all I got. Uh, it's just a really pacey film, a really tense film that I think when we talk about stunt work in films, um, a lot of people don't mention enough. And I, you know, this uh, had some really good stuff in it. Well, yeah, I was looking through the IMDb as we were doing it, and this is actually Yakima Knut's uh, last uh, screen credit as far as anything he did. But if you go back and look at Yakima Knut's history, he's one of the most notable stuntmen in Hollywood history. So that's what in, that would uh, tell you why the stunts were so impressive. So Kudos. There we go. All right, so I'll give you my MVT and my make-or-break scene. My make-or-break scene for this film is uh, it's probably it's going to have to be the train fight. I just I don't see how it could be anything else. I was just blown away by the stunt work up there. Uh the payoff to that scene as we've talked about already is amazing. As you as you yeah. called it an exclamation point. Mm-hmm. And boy is it ever. <laughs> it's like a stamp. It's like bam, there you go. What do you think of that? <laughs> oh yeah. So that scene is absolutely amazing. Breathtaking is another great word I would use to describe it. Uh just a, it's an amazing uh, amazingly set up scene. One of the best on top of train fight scenes I've ever seen. So there we go. That's that's saying a lot. I've seen a lot of those. So I've been in a few of those. <laughs> yes, there we go. Uh, my MVT for the film. I this one I wrestled with a little bit. I, I didn't know where to go. There's so many great character actors in this film. I didn't know who I wanted to pick, and I really wanted to pick Bronson. But you know what? I'm going to go outside the box here, and I'm going to say Ed Lauder. I really liked Ed Lauder in this film. Uh, I like him all the time anyway. He's really great at playing this, you know, kind of gruff guys and everything else. But I really liked his character arc in this film. He starts out as an ass and kind of develops as you go along and stuff. And I love Bronson in this film, so he would definitely, I mean, they were neck and neck. But uh, I'm going to go with uh, Lauder. I really loved him in this movie and uh, one of my favorite performances from him for sure. Uh, my score for the film is a 7.75. I think this film is really, really good. As we talked about off the air before we started recording this today, guys, I told Will that I think this might be the perfect, and I say this with all my heart, uh, the perfect Saturday ratinee on a rainy day to sitting around the house movie. This might be the perfect example that if I've ever seen a film, this might be. And I actually watched it on a Sunday uh, while it was raining here in the Bluegrass State. And, uh, and it was a Sunday afternoon. I watched it about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. 
and I never paused it or anything. I just went right through it. So great, great little entertaining little film. And again, Bronson, uh, Bronson film that comes through and that's all I got. Excellent. Um, I think our stuff's going to be fairly similar. Yeah. The make or break. I just, I don't see how you can't go with the train sequence. I mean, there is some other good set pieces or, or scenes, um, the siege on the train and everything else, but yeah, really. Wow. Yeah. That, that fight on top of the train is really thrilling stuff with, with some great moments. Uh, And, and, you know, I think one of the things now, when I go back and watch older films and watch the stunt work, I think I can almost appreciate it more now because I know that it's not green screen. Yes. Yes. Right. Like, you know, you see that stupid shit in Die Hard 19 when the car is on fire and it's flipping and, and Bruce Willis ducks his head and it skims over his head. And that yes. bullshit doesn't it doesn't it's not thrilling to me because they, they've pushed the boundaries of fucking logic and and, you know, things being reasonable so far that it's very cartoony and that has a time and place. But when you see stuff like that in this film, you know, it's real and it gets your blood racing, gets your, your heart racing, your blood pumping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that is my make or break. Uh, my MVT. Again, I wrestled with this. Um, I really liked Louder in this film a lot. I really did. And like you said, it may be my favorite performance of his. Um, I really like Bronson in the film. Um, I thought Jill Ireland was good. Usually I find her a little bit cold in her films. With, yeah. Uh, yeah, she could be one-dimensional, uh, to say yeah. the least. Yeah, a little bit cold, impersonal, but I thought she was pretty good in this. Um, so I kind of uh, figured the best way for me to go would be to say the ensemble cast. Okay. Um, I just I thought everyone was good, and there's so like you know you got Ben Johnson in here and Bronson and Louder and Crenna and McKinney and you know Durning. You got uh, an aw- <laughs> an awesome chef. I mean, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you got so many good things with this cast that I just felt like that you could go with. You could go with the train. You could go a lot of ways, but I went with the cast. Uh, my score for the film is slightly below yours. It's a seven point five out of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, I have to admit going in um, that I wasn't quite sure how much I was going to like this, but um, I really dug it. And I, like you said, Sammy, it's a perfect Saturday afternoon uh, film. It's, it's a solid, solid film. I don't think it's an iconic Western in the, you know, the sense of the wild bunch or once my time in the West or any of those, but it is a great little film that I think uh, is overlooked. Yes. Probably one of more uh, Bronson's most overlooked films. Uh, I can say that now. Uh, I haven't seen it. Finally. Uh, this is definitely one that's in the, the Bronson canon as uh, you need to see. It's definitely a very cool film. Also, let me just mention, because I always like to mention these taglines. The tagline for this film is absolutely fucking awful. Oh, I meant to mention that. I'm glad you did. <laughs> Revenge, mystery, danger, ambush. Okay. I, I, I can see the, the, the uh, marketer behind this one. I got four words. I don't know what the fuck to do with them. <laughs> okay, let's just put them in one sentence. <laughs> yeah, let's put 30 words in a hat and pick out four of them. <laughs> yes. It's like the tagline on IMDb is like the keywords. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah because I looked at it and I'm like, is this the keywords? I tried to scroll over it so it would come up. I'm like, this is different. <laughs> so I was like, what the fuck? But that's awful tagline. I think what's my tagline awful? for this film would have been facial hair and snow. <laughs> yes. Well, there is actually a great tagline. There was three taglines in the film, but the the, the primary one is that revenge, wash, rinse, repeat, mm-hmm. garbage. But there's a great one that they should have used as the main one. It's death rode the rails to break hard pass. Yeah, I like that. I like that quite a bit. And by, by the way, I just want to say before we get into talk, thank you, Demise, for picking this film. We uh, both hadn't seen it, and we really appreciate getting turned on to something new. I want to say that. And also, I want to say that uh, I love the title, Breakheart Pass. It just it has a ring to it that's just great. 
Yeah, again, it's one of those evocative titles. So, you know, you, you sort of get an image of it, and when you see the snow and everything else, you can imagine this unforgiving climate with these sort of tough classic men, and yeah. Good stuff. All right, so that is our review of Break Hard Pass from 1975. We will go to break and come back with some Legend of Billie Jean. We'll be back after this. PopSyndicate.com. Your one stop for all your unhealthy obsessions. Breaking news and in-depth reviews on all of your favorite movies, music, TV shows, podcasts, comics, books. PopSyndicate.com. Back from break. Uh, Going to go over our second film, which was uh, chosen by one Valencia. I believe we have an email from her about uh, covering this film. Uh, yes, actually, we do. Um, did you have it in front of you, or do you want me to uh, read it? Or yeah, you can go ahead and read it if you if you got it there. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. I just do want to say uh, I think I would be wouldn't be able to forgive myself if I didn't mention my strong, strong love for. Uh, that song you just played, and Lisa Lisa, more specifically, she is one of the underrated foxes of the 80s. Yes, 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 she is. As I've uh, told you before, uh, she's gotten me through many lonely teenage nights. <laughs> uh, yeah, she is one of the, just, even now, she still looks good in that video. I mean, 80s hair and all. Um, okay, so Valencia did send us an email. Um she initially sent us a voicemail, as we'd said, um, because she'd picked a different film, but she didn't send a follow-up, uh, sort of an explanation as to why she wanted this one instead. So she sent it, and uh, it says, The Legend of Billie Jean. My movie pick is one of my childhood faves. The quote, fair is fair. We didn't start this. We didn't mean for this to happen. Fair is fair. Quote, uh, has stayed with me for years. Little did I know that little putter, Yardley Smith, would end up being one, the one and only Lisa Simpson. I'm still fascinated by that. I loved Christian Slater and Keith Gordon. Invincible by Pat Benatar is still a favorite song of mine. All I can think of is girl power. When she didn't get what was, ag- what was agreed, she fought back and won the support of people who felt she was fighting a good fight without really trying to be physical. This was not really my original choice, but the gents were nice enough to let me change my mind. V. Nice. Nice. Yes, this wasn't an original choice, but we are always open for letting everybody change their their choices, whatever they want to pick. We are down for that. Yes, you have to follow your fart and follow your fart. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to follow anyone's fart, quite frankly. You have to follow your heart. And as V said, and as is topical, fair is fair. Fair is fair. All right, so I'm going to synopsize this film, and then we'll get to get some coverage on it here. Uh, basically... 
The plot synopsis on uh, IMDb here is kind of weak, but we'll go with it anyway. It's uh, a Texas teenager cuts her hair short and becomes an outlaw martyr with her brother and friends, which that plot synopsis is really, really bad. And really it's bad because it makes it sound like, you know, she cuts her hair off and that makes her a martyr, an outlaw martyr at that. So, uh, you know, that's not really the case, really. It's kind of, there is martyrdom in here, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, but. All right, so this film is from uh, 1985, and uh, Valencia picked it, so let's kick it over to you and get going on it. All right, the first thing I want to say before we get into the actual film itself is um, I did a little research, and I saw this film was not available on DVD, and much like one of my favorite shows from my youth, uh, Wonder Years, it's because of um, copyright situations with the music and everything else, so it's sort of stuck in limbo. Um, I did contact Mark at Cinema de Bazaar, and he does have it, and uh, if you put in the request to him, um, he can certainly get it to you. So, with that being said, if any of you are looking for this film, Cinema de Bazaar is the place to get it. Um, Yes, so anyway, the first uh, note, or the first thing I want to say is just talking about the cast a little bit. It's got this really kind of eclectic cast. you got Helly's, Helen. Wow, I just can't talk this morning. Yeah, Helen Slater, uh, also known as Supergirl, of course, uh, in the titular Billy Jean role. You got Keith Gordon, uh, who's uh, who I know, who I'm most most familiar with from uh, Dress to Kill, the De Palma film, and he's went on to some uh, pretty good respect in terms of directing and whatnot. Uh, you got Christian Slater, of course, everyone knows, uh, Mister Early '90s, Late '80s himself. Uh, Peter Coyote, you got Yardley Smith, who Valencia talked about, who is Lisa Simpson, and uh, Dean Stockwell. So it's a pretty eclectic uh, cast, all in all. Yes, it is. Oh, we had a little hit a button there. Uh, yes, it is a very eclectic cast, to say the least. And uh, Slater is really, uh, she's aged really well. <laughs> yes, she has, actually. Um, and considering the hard living that Christian Slater. Because you met Helen, obviously. Considering the hard living that Krishna Slater's done, he, he doesn't look too bad uh, either. All things considered, there's people uh, younger than him in the industry that uh, look worse. That's for sure. Yeah, he's a teenage fox, or was a teenage fox. <laughs> yes, and he had quite the blonde mane. That's sort of the first thing I noticed. Was it's really weird to see a 16 or 17 year old blonde Christian Slater. Yes, I mean this is like bleach blonde too. Yeah, it's very very blonde, and I guess it was. Well, I wonder if uh, if that was his real hair or not, because maybe it wasn't. No, it must not be, because, I mean, his, his hair is brown. But unless, well, maybe his hair was blonde when he was younger, but I doubt it. I mean, the only reason I say that is because he had the blonde hair in this, and then in Gleaming the Cube, of course, he had the blonde hair. Yes, yes, he did. Um, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's, it's okay. I just said, yes, he did. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, the, one of the first things that sort of jumped out at me was, this takes place in Texas. Uh, I can't remember where now. Um takes place in Texas. I believe it's and, uh, Corpus Christi. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Um, so, Helen Slater's character, Christian, Christian and Helen, I'll just say that. Their characters are brother and sister. And sort of the odd thing is that um, Helen Slater has quite the twang, whereas Christian Slater is, is non-existent for the most part. Yeah, he didn't do a very good job on the accent here. Uh, it is practically non-existent. There's a couple moments where certain words he kind of... Like bike, he says bike, <laughs> things like that. But uh, he tended to forget later on in the film. He tended to uh, forget that. So, 
Very strange. Very strange choices there, Mr. Slater. Yes. I think he just said, fuck it. I'm just, you know, going to do young Jack Nicholson from the hop here. Um, I made a note here, and it's pretty obvious anyone that watches the film. Helen Slater is very cute. I had forgotten how cute she was. Uh, yeah. Yeah, she is. Uh, especially in the uh, uh, kind of first 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> very much so. And you know what surprised me was... As you mentioned in the uh, plot, so she does cut off her hair. And even with that short kind of pixie-ish cut, she was still very cute. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Despite some bad wardrobe choices. Yes, yes. There were some uh, terrible wardrobe choices, which might have been, you know, cool at the time. I mean, this is the 80s, and I grew up in the 80s. And, man, I guess every decade you actually grow up in, uh, you kind of look back on the fashion and kind of laugh about it. And uh, this is one of those situations where I kind of look back at it and say, oh, man, uh, did we actually dress like that? I'm afraid some of us did. Well, that's the thing. Anytime something's sort of cutting edge with the youth, it is going to be very dated. Um, For example, Christian Slater rocks the painter's cap and jorts, which are jean (laughs) shorts, of course, uh, together in tandem. So there's all kinds of awesomeness on screen on him at one time. (laughs) This is true. Yes. Um, sorry, just I, t- I kind of lost my train of thought there. <clears throat> oh, I, I, then, then the next note I have here is um, they live in a trailer park, of course. They're um, not, of course, but they live in a trailer park, and they're a little bit uh, obviously a little bit poorer. Um, but Billy Jean's friends, I thought it was awesome. There's a scene that kind of dated itself. It was so very cool. They're watching Glow, which is gorgeous ladies of wrestling, listening to uh, some Pat Benatar music, which I thought was kind of an awesome little snapshot. Yeah, yeah, and Pat Benatar's song features prominently in here because of, uh, you know, selling it through MTV and whatnot. Uh, the song Invincible, I believe, was the video I used to see a thousand fucking times and uh, did a good job of selling the movie, I can tell you that. Well, it's like you and I discussed. This was the age when MTV was so new, and this film's clearly marketed to me towards, um, I don't know, from maybe 11, 12, whether it's um, appropriate for them is another story, but marketed towards 11, 12 to about 14, 15, generally speaking. Um, And the genius thing of MTV is this was a 24-hour, a chance to advertise for your film 24 hours a day. You could get music video on constantly you could get uh, one of their sort of news desk segments you could get um you know someone talking about it so it really was a chance to endlessly advertise the film yes and they endlessly advertised the film (laughs) oh i i can certainly imagine we didn't have mtv here in uh, canada we had much music which uh, oh yeah 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 when i first i got uh kind of the digital cable package i had some much music there some uh, canadian uh stuff they didn't play nickelback though so. no they, they probably played rush <laughs> yeah they played some rush you're right yes <laughs> some maestro fresh west for those of you that uh, are canadian you'll know that um and actually in quebec it's not called much music it's called music plus ah yes well that makes sense <laughs> yes it certainly does um <laughs> uh i gotta say right from the get-go the scene with the gorgeous ladies of wrestling was was nice but the minute you're Lee Smith opened her mouth, um, was beyond nails on a chalkboard for me. I listened to her voice for many years uh, on The Simpsons, and it didn't bother me. But in this, she does this, this twang, and God, I mean, in tandem with how annoying her character is, and we'll get into that as we go here, 
certain things she does that just drove me up the wall, but her voice is really, really annoying. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, she is the voice of Lisa Simpson, and uh, yeah, it's it's not so it's it's her voice, but what it is, I think more than anything, it's the uh, the choice to be so broad in her southern accent. It's a little it's a little too broad. Her and the other girl really go full tilt, whereas everybody else in the film pretty much stays within the boundaries of uh, taste. These two kind of go way over the top, so. I don't understand that logic either, but, you know, whatever. The other girl I could handle more, and it's probably because of what you just said, that Yardley Smith's got a strange voice. Uh, it's funny, you know, uh, I think uh, Bill and Chris were just talking about uh, Yardley Smith because they covered, uh, what was it, 3 O'Clock High or whatever, and she's in that, actually. Mm. And uh, she was in quite a bit of stuff when I was growing up and stuff, and, you know, I always remember her face because she's got a very recognizable face. She looks, uh, the face is kind of odd because it makes her look older than she actually is. And... And then she's playing a young teenager and and whatnot, and it's it's just really, ah, I don't know. I really don't have a problem with her sometimes in the right role, but this one I really did have a problem with her when. Well, yeah, because, sorry, go ahead. I wouldn't say anything. I was taking a swig of coffee, buddy. Ah, uh, okay. No, but that's the thing. You know, it's it's her voice in tandem with the broad accent in tandem with uh, her character's obnoxiousness. So you, when you put that unholy trinity together it just it really makes for a hate <laughs> i guess <laughs> Unho- um, unholy trinity <laughs> uh there's some in- you and i had talked about this off the air there's some interesting if clunky social commentary and some of the things that they're trying to say in the film basically we didn't even touch on this because it wasn't in the plot synopsis but the whole thing the catalyst of this film is an incident that occurs when Billie Jean and her brother Binks um, are down at the local swimming hole. What happens is these uh, these local kind of meathead douchebags pull up in a very nice-looking challenger. Um, they've been antagonizing the brother, and they've been try- sort of trying to play grab-ass with uh, Billie Jean. And they take Binks, which is her brother, they take his uh, motor scooter, and they just trash the shit out of it. So... She goes to get a, an estimate from a mechanic, and she takes it to uh, one of the boy's father's uh, stores. He owns like a, a surf shop or something to that effect. And uh, she goes in, and, and she says, your son did this. And the son immediately says, I don't believe her, Daddy. She's from the trailers. Yeah. He sounds like he's from the trailers. <laughs> let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about Hubie. Let's talk about Hubie the son there. This is like one of the uh, <laughs> this is one of like one of the biggest pricks in the eighties uh teenage movies, man. This kid I always wanted to punch him in right in his fucking Adam's apple, right in the throat, man. This kid was such a pain in the ass, such a crybaby, such a dickhead. Uh, you name it, man. He was uh just a oh and he carries on throughout the whole film pretty much. He's quite the sniveling little douchebag. Even his father, who's one of the sleaziest men put on film in the 80s. Um, at least you respect him more because at least he has, I don't want to say respect, but he is a man, uh, he, he sticks to his guns a little bit, whereas Hubie's such a, he's just such a, a flaky, spineless. Yeah, spineless is a good word because uh, a little later on in the film, they try to give him some redemption, and really he's not even redeeming himself. He's just kind of running away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really kind of... Really kind of sad. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, he's quite, you know, again, the spoiled little brat. But the father, let's talk about him now since we're talking about Hubie. Yeah, 
is. There's a scene when, um, of course, you think for for a moment that this is going to get resolved, but of course we'd only have a 14 minute movie if it did. Um, yeah. So the father takes Billie Jean upstairs, and and anyone who's savvy enough to know what <laughs> men like that, and I don't want to generalize, but men like that who sweat like that, <laughs> look at girls like that. Have on their mind. I, lo- I love the term "men who look like that, sweat like that, <laughs> and look at girls like that." <laughs> Talk about your unholy trinity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. Um, he calls Helen or Billy Jean upstairs, and he says, "Okay, yeah, we can pay you." So I think he gave gave her the, the estimate. I think was for sixty dollars, and and he gave her forty or some really small amount. It was a. Uh, I think the wasn't the estimate six hundred and eight dollars because I keep remembering six hundred and eight for some reason. Oh, that's right. Six hundred and eight, because fair was fair. Fair was fair. Fair is fair. Uh, fair was yes. fair. <laughs> fair is fair. Not in the past tense. Um, so yeah, and he she he gives her this little small amount, and he sort of uh, starts to leech onto her and say that uh, they can do the layaway plan and the pay as you go, and every time she comes in and takes care of this sweaty, bald, mustached man. Uh, he'll pay more money. So really reprehensible stuff. Because, you know, you can tell she's probably supposed to be like a 16, 17-year-old girl. Yes, yes. Very young, uh, uh, very, you know, very sexually appealing, obviously, because she's reached that age. But uh, no call for the sleaziness that this man is uh, bringing forth. Well, that's the thing. You know, I'm a man, and I'll be frank. Um, I'm, you know, close to 30. I found her very hot. But there's a big difference in a f- between admiring the beauty or the, the budding sort of uh, sex pot nature of, of a girl like that and trying to manipulate a girl like that into sexual acts for money because <clears throat> a girl that age is still a girl. She can play dress up all she wants. She's still a girl. Right, right. Still just you a know. girl. Yeah, so, I mean, you don't, you, know, you certainly don't want to go there. But uh, fucking good old Pyatt, Mr. Pyatt, figured it was a good idea. So anyway... That starts the whole thing in line. And I'm not giving anything away here. What happens is she comes downstairs. Binks and one of the friends come in. Um, they accidentally shoot him um, in sort of an act of self-defense. Now, what happens here I thought was really, really clunky. The music during this accidental shooting scene, it's kind of jarring. Uh, it's its actually sort of comedic. And to me, it ruined the moment because it could have been a good dramatic moment in the film. Um, anytime someone gets shot and it it's a serious thing uh, like this. I don't think the need is there for sort of comedic music. Yeah, it was a little odd choice. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't even know. I can't even justify the argument for the choice of that music. I mean, I wish I could, but uh, even thinking of it right now, I, I can't justify it at all. I mean, it was it was a bad choice, and it didn't work. You're right. It, that scene's supposed to be very tense. You had a nice uh, scene of uh, you know intensity build up with uh, Billy Jean and Mister Pyatt, mm-hmm. but then you turn around and you kind of maybe that was maybe that was the point. Maybe they were trying to relieve some tension, but uh, well, we yeah. know Mister Pyatt was trying to relieve some <laughs> yeah, tension. Yeah, he sure was, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it didn't really work very well. Well, that's the thing, it, it, and we'll keep banging this drum throughout the review: is that there's good moments and and good intent here that gets marred by bad decisions or bad direct or bad direction um the soundtrack on the whole though uh talking about the music that's the thing it is pretty good in terms of all the the pop stuff i mean it's a very mixed 
time capsule bag of that mid eighties. You get some Herbie Hancock type stuff in spots, um, some synthy stuff, some sort of moody new wave stuff. You get some Billy Idol. Um, so it's just interesting that having put together such a, a, a strong snapshot of eighties pop music, um, would they muddle it up? But I mean, who knows? It's just the way it goes, I guess. Yeah, you'll have. To, I'll have to agree with you. The soundtrack was really great. I mean, you get uh, was it uh, Rebel Yell? You get yeah, I think yep. you get Rebel Yell. You get you get a couple other uh, pretty good tunes. Uh, you get that Pat Benatar song, which I actually quite like, and uh, I've always kind of liked Pat Benatar. I liked her stuff, and uh, kind of gave me a real nice sense of nostalgia. That soundtrack. So I have to admit that was one of the strengths of the film. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, talking now about seeing back to one of the weaknesses, or the well, not the, but one of the weaknesses of the film. Yardley Smith, uh, again, here we go with another point that just annoyed me to no end. So now these teenagers are going to be on the run because they've done something very serious, so they're going to take off. Um, so there's, uh, they're, all, they're all sort of packing their stuff very quickly, and Yardley Smith decides she's going to bring a 19-foot army duffel bag with a 4-foot teddy bear and an aquarium-sized amount. She basically dumps the rocks from her aquarium or the marbles from her aquarium into her fucking bag. Yeah, it's never really clear if they're rocks or marbles or, you know, those glass rocks that people put in aquariums. It's never, never really clear exactly, but, uh, yeah, it's like she's carrying a dead body in that damn bag. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that, that those rocks would get heavy very quickly. Yeah. But especially for rid- a ridiculous. So maybe, maybe Maybe the logic there is that she's, you know, childish and uh, maybe immature for years and you know, thinks this is all fun and games and brings around a bunch of stuff. I don't know what the logic is, but either way, it was, uh, I think maybe the logic might have been comedic relief, but it kind of comes off as, I don't know, stupidity. Well, that's the thing I do certainly think, and there's something I'm going to reference here that was the the low point, the absolute low point of the film for me, um, which of course ties in with her character, the oddly named Putter. Um, but yeah, she was supposed to be this younger girl and comedic relief, but it just failed on both ends. Yeah, failed on failed on all ends, really. Um, the next uh, point I have here is actually a question directed at you, and um, that's why Vermont. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, like I said, I think I told you this before. Uh, if if uh, I was up there, I'd be a little offended, uh, Canada, because they keep all they keep talking about is pancakes and maple syrup and uh, Vermont. Uh, I was like, I, th- I thought you guys ruled that market. Well, we do, <laughs> which is why I was insulted. <laughs> so they insult the southern man and they insult the northern man. <laughs> yeah, they find a way to uh, ins- to slap piss to piss in both of our faces and tell us it's raining. <laughs> <laughs> that is odd. I think about it. this movie is trying to offend the gentleman's guide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, basically, this is sort of an inside joke. Let's. I want to let everyone in here. Basically, what happens is throughout the film, Christian Slater's character. Um, asks his sister, Billie Jean, to tell her, him about Vermont, because I guess she must have been there on a school trip, and being in t- the hot, sticky Texas, um, they sort of long for this sort of more moderately climated uh, place where there's snow and snowball fights and maple syrup and pancakes and everything else. So <laughs> it, it sort of becomes this uh, this Oz uh, of sorts for uh, for Binks. The only no, logic, always... the only logic for these, uh, you know, for this uh, fascination with Vermont, I can think of is just because of how hot it is in Corpus Christi, and they just want to go somewhere where it's cold. Now, 
I guess I never heard of Montana or the Dakotas or I guess I never heard of Canada either. If they're free fugitives, why wouldn't they want to go to Canada? Everyone does in movies. <laughs> so I, I don't understand. I don't understand it. So it was odd that they picked Vermont. Somebody, somebody behind the scenes must have been from Vermont or something. <laughs> yeah, that's very possible. Very possible. Um, I thought that. Um, actually, you know what? Never mind. I'll bring that up later. Um, we get now. We talked about those aquarium rocks, and of course, we couldn't have had uh, that that done without the old marble on the floor when someone's chasing you. Trick pop up. Yeah, which uh, Peter Coyote's character kind of laughs about and stuff. Which I, I kind of liked that they at least referenced the fact that even he's like, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because they got like G.I. Joe walkie-talkies and sort of all these sort of kid-like shenanigans that, you know, they're sort of pulling over on the cops. I know Hubie, he, he gets hit in the nuts at least uh, two or three times in this film and can barely walk. Yeah, I don't think that was a good... Well, that, that's like that. that's like uh, Billie Jean's finishing move. Like if she was a wrestler, is the old knee to the balls. Yeah, that, that certainly would have been her finishing move. Yeah, she whips it out a couple of times in here. Well, I, I think like at least three times I can think of. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, she does. Did she didn't? No, I don't think she ever tried to knee uh, Peter Coyote and get away or anything. Did she? No, no, I don't think so. I think he played, you know, kind of a he kind of plays the audience's, uh, you know, kind of plays to the audience's uh, feelings of the film. He's kind of like the uh, you know our character in the movie. So uh, I think if she would have need him in the balls, we would have probably turned against Billie Jean. Yeah, no, you're right. It's it's funny how certain little things like that, you know, it's a tightrope walk sometimes in terms of sympathies towards characters. Um, you'd mentioned this in the synopsis, and it's, it's really is a big thing with the film, but there's a moment when um, they're on the run and they're looking for an empty house so they can sort of shack up for the night. They go to a house, they find Keith Gordon doing his best teenage werewolf Michael Landon impression. Um, like, he looks like a teenage werewolf, and he also looks like uh, the Cowardly Lion a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, speaking of Oz, he did look a little bit like the Cowardly Lion. <laughs> uh, what you get, they're all sitting around, sort of, you know, eating and whatnot. And it cuts over the TV. You can see on the TV, and anyone who's familiar at all with um, with history, uh, you can see it's Joan of Arc, you know, by the haircut and the, the outfit and, and her sort of looking upwards. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Nice little, nice little touch. But then, of course, and I think maybe, obviously, because it's it's made for a younger audience. But nonetheless, they go on to explain to no end Joan of Arc and what she did and what happened to her and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you know, it would have been nice just to have them talking while they cut over that clip of her on the screen for just a moment. Because it's one of those things that it's like a nice little reference without being um, heavy-handed. Yeah, yeah. Billy Jean becomes fascinated with it. They kind of all go take a dip in the pool, which is pretty cool because he's got a, a water slide right outside his window, which is odd. But this is obviously a kid who has everything he wants. And, you know, his character kind of plays a factor into the film uh, as we go along and stuff. And, and I liked his character and stuff. Of course, you know, it, does, it helps that he's a you know obviously a horror movie fan and keeps his bedroom like a uh, uh, kind of a makeshift haunted house. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, she kind of becomes fascinated with it and stuff, and then you, now we start getting the symbolism of Joan of Arc and the martyrdom and stuff, which sometimes in the film is handled well, and then uh, more toward the end of the film is handled really badly. Yeah, it is, and yeah, we'll probably get to it later on, but there's some moments of very heavy-handed uh, stuff pertaining to that that um, 
that statement or what they were trying to, to say in terms of uh, her being a martyr and Joan of Arc type character. Um, I got to make sure I don't say Joan Van Ark. Nice. Yes. I, <laughs> I haven't heard that name in a while. No, I know. Neither have I. I don't know how it popped into my head this early in the morning. Um, <clears throat> now, this uh, the this scene where we just talked about it, it's followed by because this is pre YouTube, pre internet, pre Gawker, and all these things pre the the age when information can spread like wildfire. So what they do is they propose um, uh, Keith Gordon's character is a bit of an AV nut. So um, they get out some video and uh, they tape her making a statement about what they're doing and why they're doing it and just to clear the air because what you get is this uh, this sort of – and this was sort of good but, again, a little bit heavy-handed at times, this sort of pop culture look at, oh, Billie Jean was here, Billie Jean was here. And they're looking at all places all over the state and you can see the cops are putting push pins on the, the map of Texas and they're saying there's no way she could have been here and here. And you see like girls that look at, like sort of like her. They're trying to dress like her coming in and saying, I'm Billie Jean, I'm Billie Jean. You can kind of get that that pop culture obsession with uh, with criminals or with people in general. Um, but anyway, so she they make this video so she can clear the air. And at the end of the video, she says her tagline, which is "fair is fair." And then she hits this really awkward double bicep pose, which I don't know why they put it in because it just seems so ridiculous. This this slight teenage girl hitting the uh, the iconic Arnold double bicep pose to <laughs> emphasize it, which de-emphasized it. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the problem is, is this that she awkwardly does it, and I guess maybe they're trying to say, you know, being a teenager, maybe she's awkward. I don't know. I mean, I'm probably looking into that too much. The truth of the matter is, it looks like it was done in one take, and it looks like even Helen Slater was like, "This looks kind of stupid." <laughs> yeah, I've just shaved my head for this film. Now you want me to fucking hit the double bicep pose? And I'm, wear- I'm wearing an ear cuff. Thank you a lot. I gotta now. I gotta do the double bicep pose. <laughs> Shoot pants. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so anyway, Keith Gordon's father, who I mentioned earlier on, Dean Stockwell. And to me, the place I know Dean Stockwell from most of my youth is uh, a little show called Quantum Leap. And anytime I saw him, I told you this, Sammy, I kept waiting for him to put on a glitter suit and ask Ziggy for Sam's probability of leaping and hear that beep, boop, 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 beep. Yes. Yes. And uh, uh, I think we talked about this. I kept waiting for him to, uh, you know, start singing some Roy Orbison or something because I'm always familiar with him from Blue Velvet, which, you know, every time I see him, I always think about that character from Blue Velvet, which is such a creep. We've talked about uh, a lot of the the eccentric or uh, sort of interesting casting, and I keep banging on the drum of my hate for uh, Putter and a.k.a. Yardley Smith. Um, <laughs> here's what... You know, we talk about make or break here on this show. And here is what broke her character for me. There's a scene where they get involved in a shootout because there's a $10,000 reward put out um, for the safe return of Dean Stockwell's son, who's played by Keith Gordon. So the shootout occurs. Windows are getting shot out of their vehicle, this and that. And uh, Billie Jean turns around and she sees Putter. And she, you can see that by looking on her face that it looks like Putter's been shot. And I kind of pumped my fist like Tiger Woods and I went, yes! But... Uh, <laughs> Nice. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't do that. Even I'm not that mean. Um, but anyway, she goes, oh, my God, Putter, you've been shot. And Putter goes, no, I haven't. I'm a woman now. And uh, for you to be able to read between the lines, it doesn't take much. She's just gotten her period. She started menstruating. So 
yeah, this fucking idiot decides that she's going to rag all over the seat of the car in the hot Texas sun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, pretty nasty. I mean, I don't Why know. do that? Why put that in there? It was so... It's... it's the, only thing I can th- the only thing I can think is this film <clears throat> has a tinge, and I say this lightly, a tinge of female empowerment. Uh, it doesn't handle that... It handles another thing that I'll talk about on my side of the review better, but it doesn't handle the female empowerment as well as as people have claimed it does. It handles it kind of very clunky, one of our favorite words. And uh, that still doesn't excuse it for putting this in there, but that's all I can think is, you know, it's uh, it's female empowerment and things like that. That's all I can think. I mean, I I can't bring you any other logistic uh, reasoning for it other than that. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I only got a couple more notes here. I've been sort of blathering on. Um, throughout the film, you get this local sort of wacky FM radio DJ from Corpus Christi, um, and he's sort of somewhat kind of uh, uh, announcing what's going on with Billie Jean and this and that. But I think it would have been really cool if they sort of had sort of a Lig Thig, Lig, Lin Thig pen in Warriors or Super Soul from Vanishing Point or even Happy Harry Hardon himself sort of rallying the troops and, and sort of... Um, guiding the the kids on their way i would have really liked that better i think they're sort of wasted the uh, the dj angle because the dj wasn't saying anything that we didn't already know yes yes uh yeah the dj in this one's kind of lame uh there's some pretty funny scenes with the dj when he gets to the beach and uh he interviews a couple of really badly acting uh background actors <laughs> that that make me laugh every time but you're right. I mean, uh, he kind of reminded me also of the DJ from uh, the Ramones film, Rock and Roll High School, a little bit. So, not as not as kind of outgoing, really, but a little bit. Yeah, but he was he was kind of wasted. They they could have they could have used it like the uh, Vanishing Point one. That would have been pretty awesome. Yeah, it would have been. For those but, of you who haven't seen Vanishing Point, uh, make sure to check that out. <laughs> yeah, very 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 good film with uh, Cleavon Little in a, an interesting performance. Yes. Um. Well, the last note I have, because I'm sure you're going to talk about some of the things I had mentioned, was when I was watching the credits, I don't know quite what compelled me to, but when I was watching the credits, there was a credit for the hairdresser, and it said, The Billy Jean Cut by Le Maire. <laughs> now, Le Maire is spelled L-E-M-A-I-R-E. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> That's really all we need to say about that. This person knows who they are. Hmm. Yes, and this 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 Le Maire was from Beverly Hills, which is in California, which I don't know my geography, but maybe close to Long Beach. Sacre bleu! <laughs> <laughs> I don't even I don't even know what that means. I just know people say it in excitement. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, Mister or Mrs. Oh, let me let me. I don't want to give away too much. Le Maire, you know who you are. All right, all right. So is that is that all the notes you have? That is it. That is all. All right. I'll go over a few things. I got a few things to add. Uh, this is produced by Peters and Goober, who would go on to produce the uh, first Batman film that was a mega hit. So uh, they were on their way to uh, capitalizing on the youth market and uh, doing a very good job of it, I must say. I really love the uh, 80s aesthetic of the film. I have to admit that. I mean, I am not the world's biggest fan of nostalgia. Now, I, I like the. I like when, you know, you rent a few movies uh, or step back and watch a few like trashy horror films or something it reminds me of being a kid and stuff but you can't ever really totally recapture that that feeling you know so i try to avoid nostalgia as much as possible 
because it just kind of makes me sad sometimes. But this one really kind of brought some things back. I can remember watching these uh, advertisements for this film so much on MTV. Well, the one an advertisement was a rock video, and and MTV was becoming between eighty whatever it came out and eighty five, it was quickly becoming a source of advertising more than a source of actually playing real music. Uh, even though in eighty five they were still at least playing videos, I don't even know if they even play music videos anymore. Uh, so it, it was, it was weird that this was kind of like the first time I got a taste of that true corporate, uh, selling of films to young people and it worked they sold it to me and, and my brother and a lot of our friends and stuff, you know, uh, this is not a film aimed at teenage boys, but we wanted to see it. And, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the advertising worked pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it certainly did. I would imagine. Um, yeah, you were talking about the scene with uh, Mr. Pyatt and her. I mean, that scene's well shot. It's well set up. It's very sleazy. I mean, you just know something's going to happen. You can just tell about Mr. Pyatt, you know, the way he's going up the steps saying, you want your money or not? So, well, the, the thing is, you do get a good sense of impending dread. Yes, you do. You do. And really, that's one of the better set up scenes in the, in the film. I mean, there's some other scenes where he tries to build tension in Matthew Robbins. And let's mention that Matthew Robbins... Uh, did direct a couple of interesting films. He directed a childhood favorite of mine, which is Dragon Slayer. And I know he directed a childhood favorite of other people's, but uh, not really a film I'm into too much. I was at the age where I was too cool to watch it and like it. Uh, and that was uh, Batteries Not Included. I know some people out there really like Batteries Not Included, but he directed that as well. And he worked with Spielberg, Lucas, uh, a couple other the kind of heavyweights of Hollywood. Uh, so, you know, he has uh, a good background and stuff. But... He handles most scenes pretty clunky-like, except for a few moments in here you can see that he has talent and stuff. So, I mean, I know he's a pretty good director, because I, I like Dragon Slayer. I think it's a very good story. It's well told. Um, Battery's not included, not so much, but to be fair, I've only seen it once, so I can't really sit here and tell you that, you know, it's it's crap or it's really great. I just remember it being kind of meh, you know? Well, I know Miles uh, on the Show Show Gang liked that one, if I remember correctly, but... The interesting thing about batteries not included, if uh, if I can excuse me, if I can recall, is that was written by Mick Garris and Brad Bird. Brad Bird, of course, from Pixar fame, and Mick Garris from horror fame. So it was sort of an interesting troika to uh, put that film to screen. That is true. That is, uh, it's odd when you think about that kind of stuff, but it's all kind of cyclical in Hollywood, you know. And uh, Brad Bird, of course, is you know went on to be one of the preeminent. Uh, Animated film directors, uh, Ratatouille, uh, The Incredibles, things like that, and, and of course The Iron Giant, which you know makes the samurai cry. So you won't watch it anymore. But you know that's neither here nor there. Uh, we um, here's really the only thing I really have to add to this uh, this discussion because I think you pretty much nailed everything that I wanted to say about the film, and that's that I think there there's a lot of room here for a remake of this film because I think in today's day and age, this type of material would be more poignant. Uh, of course you got YouTube and you got, you know, instant media access to everything nowadays with the internet and technology and whatnot. And I think they were trying to say with this film, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, they were trying to say that, you know, they're trying to make some kind of commentary on how we take these, you know, people off the streets and stuff and we use them and, and we, you know, we get behind them or we just start watching them on TV a lot. But as soon as we're done with them, we just kind of throw them away and toss them away and stuff. And they're really trying to make that commentary here. And they do that pretty okay. Now, there's some scenes where, uh, you know, some, some imagery is very heavy-handed, like you said. And I agree with that. There's some really kind of really – it's like the director didn't really know how to say it. 
and he could have done a lot less and said the same thing. But there are moments in this film that I thought, you know, wow, this would really be more poignant now because, uh, you know, us as a society, I don't know about Canada and, and other countries so much, but I know America traditionally is very much a country dominated by, you know, we see some bad news or we see some kind of crazy thing that happens and then we harp on it for about the next two or three months and then when we're done with it we just kind of discard it like uh yearly smith's trash yeah like a yearly smith's uh <laughs> pad so there you go <laughs> well she didn't have one there's nothing to discard <laughs> that's if true had, we wouldn't have been talking about it <laughs> so yeah oh we, we always find something odd to talk about on the show <laughs> I never in my life thought I would talk about Yeardley Smith's menstruation. <laughs> Ever. Yes. <laughs> we are that show. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's some good commentary going on here. And uh, some of it's handled well, but most of it, unfortunately, is handled kind of heavy-handed. So it kind of really hurts the film as far as looking at it as a real film fan now. Now, I still like the film. I think it's a, a very nice film for nostalgia reasons and everything else. I just... I think that it's a little clunky in retrospect and stuff, but uh, while it really took me back and, and really gave me uh, that sense of uh, nostalgia that I usually try to avoid, it really just kind of put a smile on my face sometimes. You know, I remember growing up and wearing these baggy pants and these odd shirts that were you know oddly designed. You look at them now and you're like, oh my God, how do people wear that stuff? And uh, it's just, it's, it's really strange. And uh, you know, the ear cuffs, I had ear cuffs, I had painter's hats, I had a painter's hat. Me too. Yeah, you know, all these things were happening, and it's really weird to remember all that at uh, the age of 36, as opposed to, you know, when I originally saw the film, which I was probably about 13, 12 or 13 years old. So it's really just weird to me. Uh, but I do think that he was trying to make some kind of commentary about the popularity of masses, uh, a popularity to the masses, and the cult of personality that people get behind with these outlaw bandits sometimes uh you know this is not nothing new it's been going on since bonnie and clyde it's been going on since dillinger it's been going on for a long time sometimes people just for some reason uh it's hard to fathom or hard to understand they get behind you know the bandit and i think it's really has more to do with uh, them going against society's rules than anything and how we all kind of sometimes wish we could just you know revolt against the man you know so I think there's yes. some things being said there. I just think it'd be it, it, if you get a really talented director, this could be remade very well. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And that's the thing is is this film has some good things to say and some interesting things to say and and some very topical things to say, especially that were ahead of its time. You know, you look at shows like The Hills and The Real Housewives of This and That and Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian, all these fucking idiots. That have become so famous for do for for how vapid and how shallow they are, um, you know how we were just people latch onto that. I think that there was a lot to be said for that. I just like I said, it's too bad that at times they they don't straddle the line well enough um, uh, from a technical standpoint or, or from just the way they convey the things. Because yeah, there was a lot to be said here. Um, and and let me be clear, I'm not I'm not bashing this film. It sounds like I am. I, I did I did enjoy the film, and I did think there was a lot to be said. And that's maybe why. I sound as disappointed as I am because the things they were trying to convey and the heights they were trying to reach, I thought were within arm's reach, but it's like you got a receiver in football. He's a football analogy. Got great speed, can run routes, but anytime you throw the ball to him, comes close, he bobbles it and then he drops it. And that's how I kind of felt with this film at times that they could have knocked a few out of the park. Um, she's another sports analogy. Uh, and every time <laughs> they, they went to, they just didn't quite get there. 
Yes, yes, and that's pretty much all I have to say about the legend of Billy Jean. I think I'll kick it over to you for MVTs and make or breaks. Okay, my make or break is sort of an unconventional one. It happens near the beginning of the film, and it's some of the uh, the early scenes with Binks um, and Billy Jean, brother and sister. Um, you get some nice quiet moments of them um, swimming at the swimming hole, and they're kind of laying on the dock talking to each other, and really good stuff. That's sort of a real nice, uh, almost with some of the sun-dappled stuff, almost like a Sofia Coppola or Juan Carwai kind of Frenchy kind of... Uh, new wave feel to it. Um, really good stuff. And I really liked it because it set up the rest of the film quite well because it shows how close they are um, and how much they get along and how much time they spend together, which is rare for a brother and sister, but they really, you know, they're willing to fight for each other because they love each other. And their father, I believe, I think, didn't they say he died? Uh, he wasn't what? around. Yeah, he wasn't around. I never really recalled if he, they said he died or not. Yeah, but he wasn't around, so they, they had to sort of really, they had each other, and they didn't have much more because their mother was always trying to, you know, date and everything else, so they really had to, to fend for each other. Um, so I like that, and some of the early social commentary stuff was sort of the rich, sort of, uh, rich kids in town trying to take advantage of them and of Billie Jean because they think that they're entitled to it, they're yeah, better than her, yeah, so yeah. really like that stuff. Um, my MVT for the film, I thought Helen Slater was pretty good in it, Um but my MVT and uh, some of the other uh, actors in the film are really good. But my MVT is the soundtrack, um, especially the Pat Benatar stuff. I thought it was really, really good. Uh, a great snapshot of the time. Um, so that's my MVT. My score for the film is a 6 out of 10. Like I said, I don't, I don't want it to sound like I'm bashing this film. I did enjoy this film. It's a good film. Um, I just think it's, it's a film that, further to what I said earlier, has some themes that would um, uh, be popular nowadays or could hold true nowadays but i just think that this film is a film that is somewhat made for kids but some of the stuff's inappropriate for kids so it's yeah that's why my score is the way it is because like i said it just some misfires but it's definitely worth checking out nice we uh i'm gonna go with my make or break here and uh, my make or break is not too much different than yours actually it's uh i'm gonna have to agree with you on the uh the the uh, scene with the at the uh, kind of swimming hole with the pond there or the lake or whatever it is, I really like that scene. It does set up a nice little and and you really feel like that scene when you're watching it. You really feel kind of like the heat that they keep talking about. You know, I don't know what the actual temperature was there. If it was uh, cold, then uh, I felt sorry for Chrissy Swanson. Uh, not Chrissy Swanson, uh, Helen Slater. I, I get those two confused <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I felt sorry for old Supergirl there. Uh, but yeah, because uh, it looked hot. It felt hot. And, uh, you know, it had a great kind of dreamy kind of aspect. And, of course, it didn't hurt that Christy Swanson was not wearing very much clothing. So You mean Helen Slater. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Helen Slater again. <laughs> uh, yeah, we need to cover some Christy Swanson films. Evidently, I can't get her out of my head. <laughs> my bad. Anyway, uh, yeah, I really like that scene quite a bit. So I'm going to go with that from a make or break. Uh, for... The MVT. I'm going to go a little differently here. I'm going to go with uh, Peter Coyote. I really liked uh, his performance in the film. Like I said, he's kind of like the the he is the audience in the film. And there's a really great scene where he goes to uh, a miniature golf course and is kind of talking to these kids who are hiding there, you know, to kind of turn yourselves in and things and listen this and stuff. And I really thought that was quite a a poignant uh, monologue and well done. And Peter Coyote is an interesting actor in that he's not, you know the traditional matinee idol, good-looking man, but he's always very, to me, it seems, very comfortable in front of the camera. 
uh, very natural and stuff. And uh, I think he did a great job in this film, especially uh, because you really get behind his character probably more than any other character in the film. I, I think especially as an adult. Now, as a kid, I kind of saw him as, you know, the cop, right? But as an adult, I kind of see him as a reasonable grown man. So. He, he certainly is, yeah, the most sympathetic and the most endearing because he he's sort of the bridge between that world. And, you know, I think that's another thing that people, you know, that the film's trying to say, Sammy, that you brought up a good point there, is that sometimes there's this disconnect between what's important to kids and, and adults just fluffing them off. But I think he understood it and could see what they were trying to say and saw that they were generally they were genuinely in the right here. So he was the bridge between the, between the two worlds. Right, right. And you really get behind that character because you really – that, that's really where you're at, especially as an adult watching this film. That's really where you're at. You're kind of at that bridge point between the two worlds. You see the logic and stuff, and then you also see the kind of craziness that everything involves. So I really liked his character. So that's what I'm going to go with for my MVT. Now, my score for the film is going to be pretty much exactly the same. I'm going to go with a 6 out of 10. Uh, it's a above-average film. It doesn't hold up incredibly well because of the time period and stuff. But if you are, were into it as a young person, you're going to have an interesting uh, experience rewatching it because I know I did, and I quite enjoyed it. I really did. Uh, it was good to see it again. I probably wouldn't have, you know, I probably wouldn't have uh, seeked it out uh, on my own. I probably would have caught it on like cable or something, or just would have caught it later in life. One of those kind of films. But I'm glad Valencia picked it, and we appreciate Valencia picking it, and we thank you for that because uh, this is not something we probably normally would have uh, picked out and stuff. So it was really great to kind of revisit it. Yeah, and like I said, I'd never seen it, so I really want to thank Valencia because I never would have watched it probably, um, and I'm glad I did because, like I said, it's a nice snapshot of of that early to mid '80s time and and the MTV generation and whatnot, and uh, so it has this Mickey and Mallory Knox feel for the uh, early teen set, um, you know, on the run, like you'd said. So no, it was uh, it was a good film. Exactly. So that is our scores and our review for The Legend of Billy Jean. We will come back with some feedback right after this. This is Alyssa from Big Red Podcast, inviting you to listen to our show about pop culture, TV, and cool stuff that we talk about every week. Right, Derek? Well, you know you love it, and we talk about it. And if you haven't been listening, here's what you've been missing out on. And by a lot, I mean there are several shows to talk about, none of which were especially good. You know, it seems mostly uh, what I'm learning is a lot of things to take a lesson from One Tree Hill, and I never thought I'd say that. He also has a magnificent head of hair. Yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Viking, whatever. And as with Lost, the flashbacks aren't interesting at this point. <laughs> Uh, I'm just hoping that uh, it won't break my heart like heroes. Like punch a dinosaur in the face. Yes, oh, the mother was, was insane and bizarre and apparently high, I'm guessing. I learned I mean, a lesson today about karma. The man who can't feel pain shouldn't be dealing with hot liquids and whatever. Right here, old man. And why are you not winning? So listen to Big Red Podcast if you like TV and junk on TV, because we totally watch it and talk about it. So you don't have to. Find us at BigRedPodcast.com or check us out in the iTunes store.
So we are back from break. The original Masquinata. Yeah, yeah. Some good stuff there. A little jam. I was uh, shaking with my flamenco shirt on there. Yeah, I had to take uh, the rose out of my teeth before I started speaking there, actually. <laughs> nice. Nice, yes. <laughs> the rose. <laughs> <laughs> no, just to give everyone a little peek inside the mind of what I joy am, I really contemplated putting that song in an upcoming, my upcoming episode of Diabolical Sound, which I'm kind of dragging my ass on, admittedly. But um, I went more with, uh, I'm going more with the soul feel than an international feel. So I figured I'd slip that song in here because I think it's great. Yeah, I really liked it. Uh, definitely some good stuff. I was uh, jamming when I was making that break. Uh, you keep it a little short from the breaks and everything, but uh, off the air, the samurai was, you know, rose and teeth, flamenco's, <laughs> flamenco shirt with only one button at the bottom buttoned, and uh, no pants. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I was by myself, so there we go. <laughs> All right, so we got some feedback this week. Uh, I don't know how many emails we got because I haven't really checked, but... Uh, uh, I think one, two, three. All right, so we'll go ahead and get started on some emails. I'll go ahead and kick it over to you. This is just actually very brief. It's uh, the horror... The title is the HC, or Horror Commentary Take on Alice. The reason I'm sending you this is because it was strangely in tune with your gentlemanly thoughts. All in all, a decent flick. Oh, you said don't read this on air, but you'll find it interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, in any event, uh, if anyone wants to check out Sean's similar take to the gentleman's take on Alice Sweet Alice, then go to horrorcommentary.com and uh, check it out. Yes. And uh, I guess since I was so short, I could probably read the next one if you want. Uh, go, I'm, I'm going to let you go ahead and take care of the emails this morning. My eyes are still full of sleep, and I'm still cleaning them out. <laughs> Wicked. Okay, the next one is from our good friend Brian uh, from Movie Meltdown. Uh, and you can check them out at moviemeltdown.com, of course. Uh, the title is Hot Glue Gun in Hand. See, at first I thought he was going the way of Sean from Chicago with uh, blue guns, but he went a different way. Uh, hey, guys, what's up? William, please post pictures of your aforementioned scrapbook. I can see you now <laughs> staying up nights with your hot glue gun in hand as you glue little cutout hearts around a photo of a shirtless Joe Don Baker. Nice. Sort of, <laughs> sort of genre geek meets tiger beat. <laughs> or maybe you've attached a little fist on the spring to quill out of the page towards... Uh, the viewer, as they look at your loving tribute to Sam Hung, <laughs> perhaps a collage of eye-patched villains, whatever it entails, I'm sure it's well put together. So please share. Nice. Ryan, uh, that was a good little email. Um, I do want to correct you, though, Brian. It's not – there was – in one of in my, my uh, prior um, editions, there was a Joe Don Baker tribute, but the most recent one – is actually a, of uh, the snake eater himself, Lorenzo Lamas. <laughs> There's many shirtless pictures of Mr. Lamas in it. Oh, oh, Lamas. Oh, yeah. We, and we'll definitely try to cover some Lamas on this phone, on this show at some point. Yeah, th- th- what an awesome idea, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be awesome if there was a genre magazine that was like a Tiger Beat theme to uh, with all of the uh, those genre stars of the 70s, Joe Don Baker shirtless, Lorenzo Lamas shirtless. Well, oh, yeah. Lamas is actually an 80s action star, but... You know, a spread of uh, some Brian Bosworth, maybe some Bronson. <laughs> yeah, it would be pretty cool. It, uh, the Italian edition would be epic. Oh, my God. The body hair would be epic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that would be uh, quite the interesting magazine. Yes. Uh, I don't know if I'd buy it or not. I'd look through it, uh, and I'd look over my shoulder as I was looking through it because people might think uh, <laughs> I was into something I'm not. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. And they'd have those sort of... Cream puff questions like favorite color, favorite ice cream flavor. Oh God! Can you imagine what Joe Don Baker's favorite color is? 
My favorite color is blood, boy. Yep. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, well, thanks, Brian. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I need to. I'm going to hook up with those guys at some point in time, and maybe even be on the show. So, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to meeting them at some point because they are in my area of town. Well, if and when I ever get up into your neck of the woods, I uh, look forward to meeting them as well. Yes. Yes. Very cool people. Yes. Uh, okay. So the next one, the title is "What Do You Get When You Cross?" That's from Brian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it goes into say an animatronic pig, Shaolin monks, radio-controlled flashing helicopters, disappearing ninjas, '80s polka dot shirts, and a whistling cat burglar. Yep, Trinity goes east. It said in the box that this was Trinity's greatest adventure, but I have no clue how he got to the '80s and how Bambino got to be a top Interpol agent hot on his trail. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I was laughing so hard at parts that a bit of piss came out. Jesus. He attacked. <laughs> He attacks the ninjas with a toy helicopter he keeps under his shirt, for heaven's sake. They they even do the fistful of dollars mule laughing quote, but use the pig instead. I haven't seen any other trinities, but I'm sure they're better than this one. Uh, Seriously now, gents, I finally got to see Martyrs after hovering over my stop button for nearly a year now in the event. Oh, after hovering over the stop button for nearly a year now in the event, any spoilers might slip through. And yes, I was astounded at this feat of filmmaking. Uh, as I watched so much genre, I thought uh, that my days of jumping out of my skin while watching a film were over. But Martyrs brought that all back to me. So there was hope. Uh, sorry, I'm just trying to edit it on the fly because there's a few things in here that right. I don't want to say. Uh, so there was hope of being submerged and immersed as I was as a child when watching horror in the future. After listening to all the spoiler podcasts, I've not heard anyone mention a particular scene that stood out for me. Now, forgive me if I'm totally wrong on this or my mind was playing tricks. But after she, I'm not going to say that. Uh, this is on the air editing folks yes it's spectacular <laughs> on air editing okay so you know what the, i can't even read any of that um that's okay i do want to say that in regards to his wow sorry guys uh in regards to that question brian i didn't notice that um i would say i would say that i don't suspect that was the case um now that's that's wonderful. Just this cryptic fucking answer that no one's going to get except him. Um, this is just just for you, Brian. Yes, this one goes out to our good friend Brian from Norn Iron. Um, I would say your answer. I think it is not in line with the rest of the tone of the film. So I would say no, but it is an interesting observation. It's something that may reveal itself uh, upon another watch. So I'll keep my eye out for that when I watch it again. And thanks for the uh, email. And I do want to say that based on what he said, I think Trinity goes east. So at some point, someday, has to be on the GGTMC. <laughs> Anybody that fights crime or fights any kind of anything with a toy helicopter, I'm into it. Yeah, they keep hitting up their shirt, no less. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about that film. I, the Trinity films are weird because not. it's funny because uh, once they found a marketable, it's kind of like the Django thing. There's like two spaghetti western heroes that are incredibly marked. Well, three, really, because if you count the man with no name, but... There are actually some other spaghetti westerns where there's a man with no name and stuff, but it's not really kind of mentioned that way because obviously he doesn't have a name. Uh, but there, you know, you got Django and you got Trinity, and they just seem to slap that label on anything, you know. And Terrence Hill did some Django films, which we'll cover one pretty soon, hopefully. Uh, so, yeah, I don't even know if that's actually a Trinity film. It might have been renamed something Trinity. Trinity goes east because uh, they needed to sell it somewhere. So. It's it's almost like that Hollywood thing now of remaking things because of brand recognition. It's like the Trinity and Django thing. The title gave it brand recognition. Yes. So you're already guaranteed X amount of return on, on the investment. Yes, yes. And, of course, 
uh, you know, the Italians are good at uh, same, the same kind of activities that Hollywood was good at, which is, you know, uh, anything they can brand and put out there to make a buck. That's uh, that's what they do. I mean, it, Italian cinema in those days is very similar to what Hollywood cinema is like now, actually, with less money. <laughs> yeah, a lot more grit and sleaze. It, that's the thing. It didn't have this corporate sheen to it. Yes. <laughs> it was a lot more ballsy. And, and then once once sort of the ripoff restarted, it took it down a road that um, created a lot of original stuff from the ripoffery. Nice. Is that a word? Uh, ripoffery is not a word, but now it is. And uh, I like it. Yes. Giallo-esque and ripoffery. I think they need to be added to the, uh, the GGTMC glossary. <laughs> yes. Somebody put a definition up. <laughs> Please. Uh, all right. So we got some voicemail. Voicemail number one. Hey, guys. It's Dr. J calling. Um, I'm listening to the Martyrs Review after watching the movie Martyrs last night. And I wanted to leave an, a voicemail about your review, not about the movie itself. Uh, to hear you guys laughing out loud while reviewing this film and to find myself laughing out loud with you speaks a lot to y'all's abilities as entertainers, film reviewers, podcasters, however you want to put it. Uh, you know, Will, Samurai, Bill, y'all make movie reviews fun, even when the subject isn't. And that's why I really enjoy all your shows. I just wanted to say, well done. I've got a lot more of the review to listen to. I'm still digesting this film after watching it just yesterday. Um, but, you know, I'm glad to know that I can share these kind of experiences with people like you. Thanks a lot for all you do. All right. That was from uh, the good old Doc. And uh, we appreciate that, Doc. That's actually high praise, if you ask me. It's very high praise. And I was telling Sammy off the air, Doc, <clears throat> that when you first started that voicemail, I thought you were going to give us shit for we're trying to approach it with a little bit of a lighthearted tone. And it wasn't that we were obviously not respecting the material, as anyone who's listening to the review knows, but we have to cover things just the way we would normally talk about stuff. And, and we're really glad that you, uh, you dug the review. Yes, the film is dark, and there's no way that uh, recording an hour of conversation between me, Bill, and, and Willie uh, and staying that dark the whole time would be really – that would be even more difficult. And actually – I'll be honest with you, if we talked about the dark stuff the whole time, I wouldn't even want to listen to it. Uh, that's just me. Uh, we try to find the, the fun in everything. I mean, let's be honest, guys. We all love movies. Uh, regardless of how dark, how light, how whatever you want to call it a movie is, when you talk movies with your friends, typically you like to laugh and giggle and say, oh, man, that was cool and things like that. So we just try to take that approach to podcasting. So I'm glad the doc appreciated that uh i was a little worried about that actually about the tone when i put the episode out because i thought you know this film's really dark and we had a really good time talking about it but then i got i gotta remember you know between the three of us you know we're movie geeks and uh that's the way we talk about movies that's the way we off the air me and will talk the same way off the air me and bill talk the same way off the air bill and will talk the same way trust me guys that's the way we talk yeah basically that's just how we roll yep that's how we roll <laughs> I should have had uh, Limp Biscuit queued up for that with Roland on the background there. Oh, yeah. Rolling, rolling, rolling. <laughs> nice. Macho, macho, man. <laughs> nice, nice. All right. So, all right. I got another voicemail here. Here we go. Hey, yo. It's Matthew Zaka. Just calling to say what's up. And, uh, show's been great as always. Figured I'd drop you a line. The, uh, Cinema Day Bazaar interview was awesome. I think his name was Mark was, was uh, the name of the guy from there. I can't remember for sure, but um, maybe I should have looked it up first before I called. But oh well. Um, but one thing I noticed about him is uh, I don't know if uh, either one of you listen to Howard Stern up. He kind of sounds like 
an intelligent, well-spoken version of Bigfoot. If uh, you, if you if you know who Bigfoot is from Howard Stern, then you'll know who I'm talking about. And it's kind of funny when I was listening to his voice, like, damn, he sounds like fucking Bigfoot. I was waiting for him to say that he likes to take battery acid. It is. Um, also, I was glad you guys speaking of Cinema Davis. I'm glad you guys mentioned that uh, Man from Hong Kong is available on there because I remember when outside the cinema covered it way back when I was trying to find out Netflix and I'd had no luck. So um, I'm definitely gonna keep my eye out for that. That's all I got though. Just wanted to say hello and hope you guys have a good one. Laters. All right, the good old Matt Suzaka, or as I told you off the air, and I can say this on the air, I think I think he'll appreciate this that he is the thinking man's pervert. So. <laughs> uh, actually, yeah, it's good to hear from Matt again. We heard from him a lot in the beginning, and uh, then we didn't hear from him for a while. And I kind of chastised his ass about that, but not calling anymore. So I'm glad he called us. I don't, I don't know anything about Bigfoot and Howard. Stern. I don't listen to Howard Stern, so I don't have the uh, Sirius Satellite Radio, so I don't really listen to it. So, well, I do have it, and it's mostly NFL Network and yeah, and some other radio stations. But I used to not mind Stern, but I just find his shtick kind of wears on me after a while. But um, uh. I- yeah, I'll have to probably I'll have to look up Bigfoot to see what he sounds like. I'd yes. be I'd be interested to see that. And also, Matt, I've been trying to hit you up on Skype. Um, message me because there's something I need to discuss with you. There you go, Matt. Get involved, buddy. We miss you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh... hi guys, it's Uwe from Munich, calling, and um, really appreciated your recommendation of Ip Man last week. So um, I got to watch it, and it was great. But first. Uh, we got to speak of uh, the car crash topic again. Uh, maybe you remember we were talking about the man from Hong Kong and the car crash. And I got some good news for you because um, I found some scientific studies and it's really absolutely proven 100% um, that it's impossible for a car to catch fire after any kind of accident. Ah. So my remarks were meant uh, quite um, ironic last week when I said that uh, some cars explode and some don't. But in real life, uh, you can be absolutely sure you're not in any kind of danger with today's cars that they're going to explode if they're in a car crash. <laughs> so it's all in the movies, and I think that's uh, good like it is. Um, talking about Ip Man, I really loved it. Um, it was um, I, I just um, can't say much more about it than you did. Uh, it was really a wonderful show last week. Um, the change of tone after 35 minutes uh, was really very impressing. Started very light, and uh, the, um, the whole fighting scenes were awesome, of course. And um, I'm really looking forward to a sequel to that. Um, just wonder who's going to play Bruce Lee if there's going to be a sequel. Um, uh, yes. I really loved the, the scene in the factory with Ip Man teaching the workers and um, the whole uh, Wing Chun philosophy stuff uh, was really great. And as I said, great fight scenes, so I recommend it definitely. And thanks very much for talking about it on the show. And uh, finally, I got a question. Uh, last week, I got to see a movie called Breakdown. It's from 1997, and it's uh, directed by Jonathan Mosto and starring Kurt Russell. And that was the reason why I watched it, of course, because I'm a big uh, Kurt Russell, John Carpenter, etc. fan. Um, so I was just wondering, did you see that movie? Um, is, did it have any impact in the U.S.? Um, movie theaters do you know anything about it and what do you think of it so um keep up the good work and have a nice week uh, looking forward to your next podcast bye-bye and greetings from bavaria servus all right that was uva uh, I-, I can only answer well well i guess we can just go from the top here 
the car thing, that is good news. But I guarantee you, if I ever flipped a car over, I still would haul ass to get out of there because I've watched too many movies. <laughs> it's been hardwired into our sort of subconscious. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, when we talked about it, we talked about how I don't think that actually happens. But in the movies, of course, it has to happen because, you know, you, you, it's it's hardwired into movie to the storytelling as well. I mean, you know, cars explode. That's just what they do. Now, he did say newer cars. Now, newer cars, he probably definitely is. That probably definitely is right because newer cars are probably got that safety feature in there. Now, let's go out, you go out and flip over an old Chevelle or something. I don't know. <laughs> A Dodge well, Challenge or something. Uh, was it Pintos or Gremlins? They... They would fucking explode. <laughs> oh, it was Pintos. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think there's a scene in that spoof film, Top Secret, where somebody barely taps a Pinto and it blows up. <laughs> yeah, I think you might be right, actually. <laughs> All right, some other things he talked about. Uh, yes, we're both excited about more Ip Man. And uh, I am curious as well as to who will play Bruce Lee. I kind of really want him to just kind of grab an unknown. I don't know how you feel about that. Um, I'm all for whoever is best for the part who I don't want someone who simply looks the part. I want someone who can act the part. Um, I do know that they were one of the guys they were in talks with was anyone who's seen Shaolin soccer. They were in talks with the goalie who looks ah. a lot like Bruce Lee in that film. Of course, he's he uh, he's got the game of death jumpsuit on in that film uh, and whatnot. But they're in talks with him and, and a few other people that I read about that were kind of interesting. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be a good pick. I liked uh, I liked that guy's performance in Shadow and Soccer quite a bit. Yeah. Oh yeah, very good. And uh, lastly, he mentioned uh, Breakdown. Now, Breakdown is an interesting film uh, directed by Jonathan Mostow, who I believe did a submarine movie and who also did the Terminator Three, I believe, Rise of the Machines. Uh, yeah, uh, Mostow's a pretty talented guy uh, who's you know. Made some subpar films. Breakdown is actually okay. It's a pretty good movie. But the problem is, is that in America, it kind of got... Well, for a little while, Kurt Russell was pretty bankable. And they were trying to kind of sell him as an action star. And it kind of seemed like uh, that's the route he was going to go. But I don't think Breakdown did very well for him. I think it kind of kind of went down the uh, the crapper, so to speak, as we say here. Well, uh, there was... Sorry, go ahead. It, 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 was a, it was a tight little film. It had a really good performance from... Uh, uh, character actor named uh, I forget his name M. Emmett Walsh maybe something like that yes yes no maybe it wasn't him it was J.T. Uh, Walsh J.T. Walsh there you go yeah who uh, uh, sadly passed away uh, uh, not too long after that film came out but if you guys look him up you'll know him he's a very popular character actor especially in uh, 80s and 90s films uh, but yeah that's uh, that's all I can remember about it uh, I remember I liked it uh, I don't know if you saw it or not Will uh, yeah, I did. I thought it was okay. You know, around this old soul, he did Soldier and a few other films. And he, he's interesting because I think most of his sort of quote unquote action stuff is really only Carpenter that I think is is done well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for the most part. Except for Tango and Cash, yeah. Well, yeah, no, that's true. That's true. That's a good one. Um, yeah, most of his, his real classic action stuff was with Carpenter. But uh, yeah. no, it's an okay little film. I mean, I wouldn't, uh, to me, it's not a buy, it's a rent, but uh, it's, yeah. it's worth a look. He's always been an odd action star. Out of all the action stars that came out of the 80s and 90s, he's always been the strangest one to me. Yeah, me too. So yeah, That's that's all I we just, got to say about Breakdown, really. <laughs> yes, and please uh, keep calling in. We uh, yes. appreciate the calls and the questions. Yes, we do. Alrighty, so I think we have one more voicemail, so I'll go ahead and play that. Hey, gentlemen, it's a lovely afternoon. I'm walking around. I'm smoking a lovely Cohiba, enjoying the sun. Now, thanks to Sammy Rick. I'm thinking about how I want to die. Thanks, guys. <laughs> um, you mentioned being burned alive in fire. Mine, personally, is the inverse. Drowning trapped under ice. Ooh. Specifically for movies, the scene in Omen 2, when they're playing hockey 
on the frozen lake. And Damien makes one of a, I forget who it is now, one of the older chaps, drop under the ice. And you see him, and he's, he's, he's stuck, and he can't do anything. He's banging and banging and banging, and no one can help him. Christ, that makes me sad. Makes me, makes me, ugh. That's, that's my big fear. That was really it. Um, good show this week, good show last week. Man from Hong Kong is one of those ones I haven't seen. I saw, not quite Hollywood, and just like, I need to see this movie. I think I'm going to try and order that, uh, two-disc, Aussie-disc that, um, you're, what you're the, uh, fan mentioned. And, um, Torso is also one of those ones on that list of, I couldn't get, I'm never able to get my hands on it, I want to get that too. In terms of this week's, also, movies I haven't seen yet, so I can't really comment, I'm afraid. But more films with cars spontaneously blowing up, please. Thank you. Yes, more scene, more movies with cars spontaneously blowing up. That That's like a gentleman's guide standard, so don't worry, Fish, there'll be plenty of that. <laughs> well, uh, y- yes, I would say um, to Vishnu and our other listeners, especially those that aren't on the boards, uh, we've posted a thread called the GGTMC Upcoming Attractions, where so far I think there's about... 30 trailers of, uh, that's three zero of films that we're going to be, co- that I picked that we're going to be covering over the next however many weeks. Yeah. Um, and, and, that, one and that's just, that's just what we'll pick there. There's going to be so many more trailers going on there. <laughs> oh yeah. Between you and I, I mean, we could put it a disc. Um, <laughs> but, uh, there's one in particular, speaking of exploding cars and cars flying through the air and we were just talking about it, Sammy, and that's the stabilizer. Oh yes. Yes. The stabilizer. That's some exploding stuff in there. That's that's one of the great ones because it's got exploding uh, cars with nobody in them. That's even better. <laughs> Just push them off a ramp. <laughs> but yeah, Vish, uh, sounds like you were walking around there smoking that uh, whatever you were smoking there. I can't remember what he said. And uh, sounds like you're running out of breath there, buddy. You might want to take a break. <laughs> but yes, uh, Torso, definitely worth seeing. Man from Hong Kong, definitely worth seeing. Good stuff. And... Uh, I was thinking he was going to go with that uh, trapped under ice thing. I thought I thought he was going to go with uh, I think the dead zone. Doesn't didn't, didn't the, in the dead zone? Uh, I don't know if you've seen the Christopher Walken film, the Cronenberg oh, yeah. movie. I yeah, think. no, I've seen it. I, I can't. I think, but I can't remember for sure. It seems like there was somebody falling in ice in that film too. But that is a terrible, terrible idea or you know way to go is falling under or cracked ice. You know, which we won't have that much down here. You would probably have that more happen more often up north than you would up here because it doesn't really get that cold down here that often. Um, I don't know if you guys have that up in Canada. People fall ice? in ponds. No. Well, I know you guys have ice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know you know. I'm just, just being facetious. Uh, we get yeah, we get situations every year. You know, when you're in school, um, there's those little public service announcements, and the police officers come in and talk about safety and not walking on ponds and rivers and lakes. Uh, you know. Yeah. See, that's not that doesn't happen down here. That all I can remember in school is. Uh, when I was in school, they came in for a safety meeting said or a safety topic and said, don't take steroids and don't get in cars with strangers, which is odd because I used to get in cars with strangers who injected me with steroids. In the bum. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they said they were a needle. It says it was a needle, but it was made of flesh. So I don't know what was going on. That sounds like a fun Friday night to me. <laughs> Maybe too much. I might need to go back and edit that as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So that is it for feedback this week. Um, I'm going to go ahead and go over what we're going to cover next week. Next week uh, is going to be fun. Next week is actually our own mother's uh, picks. I guess that's the best way to say that. That was kind of hard to say for some reason. (laughs) But, yes, our mother's picked a couple of films. And uh, I'll go ahead and kick it over to you, Lars William, and let you uh, tell the listeners what your mother picked for us. 
my dear, beautiful mother that I adore with all my heart um, chose for us to cover my all-time favorite film, actually, Kill Bill. And I think that's sort of um, very <clears throat> in the spirit of motherhood and, and everything else, you know, her sort of doing something selfless. I know she, the weird thing is she came to see Kill Bill with me in the theaters and loved it, but I thought she would have maybe went more Dirty Harry or or the sting or something in that vein. But uh, no, she picked Kill Bill. So we get to talk about QT for the first time. Well, we talked about that, I guess, a little bit, but we get to cover a QT film for the first time. So yes. we're going to be covering Kill Bill. And yes, uh, that'll be Kill Bill Volume 1, too, as well, guys. That's not going to be both films. We might, we'll probably cover the other film at some point, though. Good point. Uh, my dear mother picked uh, a very interesting pick, which uh, was. This came out of nowhere when we were just kind of having a conversation, but uh, she picked uh, Terrence Malick's Badlands. So uh, also considered somewhat of a classic. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking about that and uh, with Large William. That should be a lot of fun. I, I've told you multiple times now, Sammy, I'm so excited because I've never seen Badlands. And it's a film that I'm a little ashamed to admit I haven't seen, but I'm really excited to see and talk about should be a good time, a good episode. Kill Bill and Badlands should be a lot of fun to talk about those. But that is going to be our content for next week. As always, guys, make sure to check out all of our friends at uh, Pop Syndicate, uh, especially you know the sister shows outside of Cinema Cinema Diabolica. All of our other friends over there, Pop Syndicate uh, Show Show, putting up shows again on a regular basis. I like it. There is <laughs> justice in the world. Yes, there is. And there's big shows in the world, 172 meg miles. I'm just teasing you, but you know how, you know. <laughs> Well, we're not too far off, though. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and trust me, I could put out a 170-meg show. <laughs> yeah, we are the proverbial pot if we start uh, calling Miles uh, mm -hmm. out for that. Yes. Uh, but, the, you know, you get all of our friends over there. Make sure to join up on the boards over there, popsyndicate.com slash forums. Uh, it's a good place to be. Our boards are nice and lively lately. So, you know, the, the show continues over there, guys. So if you guys want to get more involved and on a personal basis, that's the, way, that's the route to go to begin with. Also, make sure to check out Sean's website, horrorcommentary.com. Make sure to check out Andy's show, destroythebrainonline.com. That's Destroy the Brain podcast. Uh, Chinstroker vs. Punter, guys. Chinstroker vs. Punter.com. Mondo Movie, guys. MondoMovie.com. Uh, I'm trying to think if I'm forgetting anybody. Obviously, check out Dylan and Christine's awesome, awesome magazine known as Paracinema at paracinema.net. Just, uh, we want that magazine. I want that magazine to be the biggest genre magazine in the world. Ever. Ever. <laughs> I want it to just wipe out Fangoria and Rumorg. <laughs> yes, I well, I'm, I, I'm, I don't know, I don't want, I like Rue Marcus as Canadian, so I can't say too much, but I do want Paracinema to have a big skyscraper and have Paracinema Industries or something. Yes, yes, I want them, I want Dylan Santuri, oh, oops, I just said his whole name online, <laughs> on <the> on thing. <laughs> I'll have to go back and edit that out, I want Dylan to run the, uh, the, uh, everything, I want him to, to rule New York City, there we go. <laughs> Yes, and I want Dylan and Christine to sit by, side by side in captain's chairs with cigars in their mouths banging on a large oak table when they don't get the results they want because they're so powerful. Yes, there we go. So if, if, you, can't, if, you, if you never wanted a bigger bump for your magazine, I think we just gave them like the ultimate bump for a magazine. <laughs> all right, so uh, what else do we have? Oh, yeah, we've got Cinema Day Bazaar for all your hard-to-find genre needs. I just received an order from Cinema Day Bazaar, and I have to say I am very impressed. So, uh, yes. Definitely order from those guys, that, yeah, especially if you're looking for hard-to-find stuff. Uh, hard-to-find stuff is, is the key there. And actually, you'll go over there, guys, and I'm telling you right now, you'll go over there, and if you start looking around, you'll see stuff you didn't even know existed, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is what I found out when I found a Silva movie. So there we go. 
Uh, and needless to say, Henry Silva is a gentleman's guide favorite. <laughs> yes, he certainly is. Uh, also, you know, Pink Iga, we're still going to, or Iga, however you want to say it, we're still going to put some single episodes out of that. We haven't yet, I know, but uh, we will. Trust me, it'll come just like that Cinema Day Bazaar uh, interview. It'll eventually come, and you'll hear some stuff. So you'll hear some reviews there. Uh, is there anything else I'm forgetting? I always feel like I'm forgetting stuff. Uh, I think you were pretty thorough. I would say this, actually. Um, you can check out all of our friends' blogs. The three that come to mind off the top of my head are thisisquietcool.blogspot.com, which is our good friend Hans. Mm-hmm. And he was on the boards, so knows Hans. Uh, there's Emily's blog, which is deadlydollshouse.blogspot.com. There is Confessions of it was a Naked in, ooh, Confessions of a <laughs> Fake Inuit. Fake Inuit. I was going to say a naked Inuit. No, nice. Um, naked Eskimo. That's what he is. He's a naked uh, Inuit. So Yes. Uh, .blogspot.com. Yes. Yes. And, of course, our good friend GTM, Ghetto Tim Merrill, uh, which is on the glass eye on Pop Syndicate. And, if I may, one thing very quickly. Um, I've just wanted to have a very cool triple bill going on at the Review uh, Cinema here in Toronto that I'm actually going to be going to this Tuesday. I'm going to get to see... Fucking Jaws and Black Caesar in a double bill. Wow, uh, that's that's a weird double bill. <laughs> that's an awesome double. And see, here's the thing: the third film in the, sort of the triple bill is Anita, the Christina Lindbergh film. Ah, and they're cycling those three together. The only night I can go is going to be Jaws and Black Caesar. I'd rather see. Pro- well, I don't know all three. I think you can't really go wrong. Put them all in a hat. Christina Lindbergh on the big screen with all of her charms would have been very nice. But uh, going to be Jaws and, and a little. Uh, Fred the Hammer. For yes, me. yes. Christina Lindbergh does have a couple of nice charms. <laughs> Certainly has many charms. <laughs> oh, okay. So also, I want to mention: uh, keep voting for us on Podcast Alley. Please vote from our website, ggtmc.com. Also, make sure you vote for Outside the Cinema uh, or any of the other shows from Pop Syndicate if you want to, or any show. Vote for whatever you want to, but I uh, definitely want to mention Outside the Cinema. Leave them iTunes reviews. Leave us iTunes reviews. Just do that. Just, just, just do it. Uh, we just want it done, please. All right. Yes. And uh, that's about all I got, I think. Uh, the voicemail and email is on the bumper at the end, so I don't really need to say that anymore. So watch, I'll end up forgetting the email, the voicemail number at some point in time because I'll quit saying it at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's everything we got for this week. Hopefully we didn't forget anybody. If we did, guys, we apologize. Uh, it's always tough to do these kind of things. Uh, I used to always laugh at uh, F-13 because he used to always say, ah, I'm not going to do this anymore because I forget. I forget things at the end, and people always get pissed off. And uh, I can see what he means, because I always feel like I'm forgetting somebody, even when I have, like, notes and everything else in front of me. So if I forgot you, it's not because I meant to. Let's put it that way. Uh, that is it. So I think uh, with that, we will say our adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. You better watch yourself.
Hoy me estoy...